Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hey, good evening, everybody, and welcome to a very special edition of Kelly Outdoors. Um, as many of you guys know, uh, this show is primarily dedicated to the outdoor sports of hunting and fishing and backpacking and kayaking, canoeing, blah, 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 blah. You know, um, a little less than two years ago, I did a, I did a special with the guys from down in Texas uh, with the Texas Bigfoot Conservancy. And, um, you know, it was an extremely popular show. Uh, I, that show alone in the last, well, one year and nine months that it was done, uh, that show has had over 100,000 hits, which is pretty substantial. Um, and, and it's really it's really an awesome topic. Uh, these guys, you know, they're talking about Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Oma, lots of different names. Lots of different parts of the country have different names for them. Um, and two years ago, there was a show that came on TV, and it was called Finding Bigfoot. And my son and I sat down and watched it one evening, and instantly we got we gotten hooked. Okay, we were gotten hooked. <laughs> Hold on, English really is my native tongue. We were instantly hooked on the show. Um, looking at it from the standpoint of in my living room, knowing that it was in fact an entertainment show. All right, it wasn't about um, the real grungy work of getting out there and doing research and stuff, which is generally done with one or two people at a time for extended periods of time in remote places away from everybody. This was a show that was supposed to be entertaining, and it was and it was something that um, I don't really think the producers knew what they had on their hands. Um, it was kind of like a couple of years ago when I had the guys from uh, Louisiana on uh, with the Duck Commander. You know, th- their show was in its infancy, and it was it was a freight train going down the tracks, and nobody really expected to see that, and it did. And uh, I remember talking to Jason Missy; they were just they were blown away by how by how huge it was. Well, I think the same things kind of happened with Finding Bigfoot. I know that uh, we record every episode. We watch reruns. We watch reruns of reruns. We watch, you, know, <laughs> you name it, we, we watch it. And uh, one of the one of the guest hosts on there is a gentleman named Cliff Berrickman. And uh, Cliff's been you know, chasing this elusive creature for a number of years. Uh, he is a fourth-grade teacher by profession. Um, and what he does in his in his off time, his hobbies. Uh, I know he's an avid outdoorsman, but this is one of the things that consumes him with his outdoor activities. Uh, unlike you know a lot of us on this show, I mean we we pursue things hunting and fishing and stuff like that. And you know when this when this topic came up a few months ago, and I was asking some of my my listeners out there what they would think about us doing a show like this, I got flooded by emails. I got flooded by a lot of people that were very negative about the idea, and then. I got several emails that were very supportive of the idea. And these weren't emails from people in the Bigfoot community. These were people from our community, you know, the, the outdoorsman type, call us rednecks, whatever, uh, that, that community. And what I was really amazed by was the complete um, saturation of emails that I got from people that had an experience that would probably slit my throat and throw me in a ditch if I told anybody else what they told me. 
But there's a lot of guys out there, when you spend as much time in the woods as we do, doing what we do, where we do it at, it only stands to reason that eventually, sooner or later, we might have an encounter with something that we can't quite explain. And the thing about it is, when we can't explain it to ourselves, we have a hard time explaining it to somebody else. And a lot of times sitting there in front of a computer and a keyboard, you're able to you know, relive that moment in, in a sense and in a way that makes it um, possible for you to, to share that. And for everybody out there, and I know there's a bunch of you listening right now that, that sent me those emails, you know, um, those have all been put in the scrap heap. I don't have anything left that I could say you did this or you said that or whatever. But for all the, I mean, dozens of people that sent me emails that wanted to, wanted to let me know about their experiences, I just want to tell you, thank you very much for sharing that with me. And that means a lot because I know it can be a pretty difficult thing coming forward and telling somebody you saw this or you heard that or you found this and you know that 99.9% of the people on the planet are going to look at you like you just dropped your marbles, okay? But anyway, that's for all my regular listeners. Uh, to the audience out there tonight, this, we've got a lot of the guys from the Big Fit community out there and the cryptozoology community out there. I just want to welcome you to the show. Um, I hope this isn't your last time you visit us because uh, we talk about all kinds of fun stuff. You know? <laughs> well, I think it's fun, but that's anyway. But anyway, one of the guest hosts of the show is Cliff Berrickman. He's a, a smart guy. He doesn't have that wild, crazed look about him that makes you think he just slunk off of a nut farm someplace. Pretty sharp guy, pretty straightforward guy. And uh, right now I'd just like to welcome you to the show, Cliff. How you doing, man? Oh, I'm doing great. I'm super worn down and tired after traveling all day on an hour and a half sleep last night, um, but it has been one of the most fantastic weeks in, 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 in my memory this past week, and so much exciting stuff is going on right now that I'm just holding on tight and going for a great ride. Well, you know, this is this show, and I, I, we're not going to make this episode all about the show because we're, you know, that's stuff for everybody to digest, you know, and I don't want to ruin upcoming episodes, but, you know, the thing about it was when I saw your guys' show for the first time, I, I told my son Hunter, I said, you know, this thing is going to be it's going to be a freight train, you know, just like Jace's show. And uh, so far, it's been exactly that. I mean, the the readership, not the readership, but the viewership, it just keeps growing exponentially. It's amazing. It really, truly is. Yeah, and, absolutely. I mean, everybody loves Bigfoot when it comes down to it, whether you you think the creatures are real or not. Um, everybody, most people, at least it seems to me, love Bigfoot. Um, in fact, it seems to me sometimes the people who don't think Bigfoots are real actually are more passionate about it than I am. Uh, they, right. I, I've never had somebody yell at me because I believe something's real and they don't, you know, outside of, like, politics and religion, you know. But yet that has happened to me a lot of times on the, on, in the, Bigfoot, uh, on the Bigfoot subject. You know, people get very upset that I think Bigfoots are real sometimes. And I think, wow, you love Bigfoot more than I do in a weird way. But, yeah, Bigfoot strikes a tone in people, and it's part of our culture. It's part of, part of almost being American, or at least certainly North American. Um, right. and it's just a neat subject that everybody can kind of rally around, whether you think they're real or not. Well, you know, I think one of the, one of the things that I um, kind of think about on this subject is I would, I would truly hate to find out that there's nothing left out there that's truly mysterious, that's truly unknown, that's, that... Uh, that we know everything about everything. At that point, I mean, where do you where do you go from there? You know. Well, yeah, science would grind to a halt. You know, and back in the 1800s, uh, scientists were saying there are no more species to discover. 
there are no right. more large mammal species to discover. And that was back in like the 1840s. And, they, and since then, dozens and dozens, I think probably hundreds, of uh, uh, mammal species, of mammals, and let alone you know, reptiles and insects and birds and stuff, have been discovered. There's a lot out there we don't know about. And one of the things is really, really big and a lot like us and almost literally in our own backyard. And I think that kind of freaks some people out in a way. Well, yeah. I, <laughs> I would agree. I, I can just imagine uh, sitting up in a tree stand one morning and waiting for the, the – you know, light to get a little bit better so I can see what it is that's approaching me and all of a sudden see something that's about eight or nine foot tall that's not supposed to be there. That would, <laughs> I would probably, you know, wet myself, but, uh, you know, that would be... Yeah, then, then the fact that they're so similar to us and you'd be seeing this man-ape walk walk through the woods underneath you somewhere, um, it, it's, a, it's a paradigm-shifting event, to say the least. And I've spoken to quite a few hunters that um, they, they have seen them from tree stands, and that was the last day they ever hunted. Wow, that's cool. Well, let's let's start this off. I mean, there's there's a lot of people out there that know who you are, and those that don't know who you are, um, it's because they either don't have cable or dish net or something, or you know. But they're gonna find out. Um, you know, you've got you've got some other people with you on the show, and I want to talk about them later. Um, not really about them, but you know, we'll just discuss some of the personality things there. But uh, so, how long how long ago? Did you decide that this was something you wanted to pursue, to be passionate about, to have as a hobby, as a, as a I don't know, a passion, if you will? I'm not sure if it was a decision. I don't think I could really say the date because really as long as I can remember, I've been fascinated by the subject. Um, even when I was four years old, I remember uh, thinking about the Bigfoot thing, you know. It was in 1970. I'm 41 years old now. Um, so I was growing up when things like In Search Of was on the television, you know, that it was scheduled weekly. And I would always look forward to seeing In Search Of. And I grew up on those sort of documentaries, you know, Boggy Creek, for example, The Legend of Boggy Creek. Um, and so Bigfoot's been part of my, you know, consciousness, I guess. Um, but really, it was in college. Um, I, I grew up in Long Beach, California. It was in college. I was going to Cal State Long Beach. I had a few-hour break between classes. And um, being an inquisitive sort of guy, I spent my couple-hour break in the library, kind of randomly pulling books off the shelf in subjects that I was interested in. And one day I wandered into the anthropology section, and I pulled a book off the shelf, which was a collection of scholarly papers written on the subject of Sasquatches. At that point, you know, I've always been interested in Bigfoots, but I just kind of wrote them off as something funny and quirky, you know, like kind of alien-like. And I'm not saying aliens are real or not, but, you know, they're kind of – They've been kind of sent to the corner of that realm. Like, that's the weird, funny stuff. And I've always been kind of eccentric and weird myself, you know. Um, but when I was reading this this collection of, uh, of journal papers written by anthropologists, mostly cultural anthropologists, but some physical anthropologists as well, it started dawning on me that, like, holy smokes, not only are Bigfoot's kind of funny and quirky and stuff, but they might be a real species. You know, like when the cultural anthropologists are talking about how every Native American tribe has the Sasquatch as part of their mythology and, and lore, just like they have bear and raven and all the other natural species, you know, the things that we think of as natural. Um, and that, that went a long ways. And I started reading about the biomechanics of the foot and the discoveries made um, based on footprint casts and how um, the, the, the underlying anatomy is the exact redesign that would be necessary to carry a biped of that weight. And I started started thinking, how can this be a hoax? Because the people who are finding these things are just, you know, country folk, basically, the kind of simple country folk. They don't know much about the biomechanics of the foot, for example. But yet, there it is. 
it makes perfect sense, and it's the exact necessary redesign. And, and so in, in about 94, I think it was, I started doing field work because I'd, I'd always been camping my entire life, backpacking and fishing and, you know, just generally camping. But in 94, I started camping with a purpose, and that purpose was Bigfoot. And since then, I've just been just – I've gone off the deep end, clearly. Um, and here I am just grounding in the subject and loving every second of it. Well, when you're out there where you're at, I mean, you're a West Coast kind of guy, right? I mean, you born Absolutely. in California, right? And now you live born in, in California. I, I live in Portland, Oregon, yeah. Okay. Um, I, too, uh, at a very early age, I'm going to share this with you, Had a my dad took us to see a movie. Um, and my brother, my younger brother Casey and I, and uh, one of my dad's friends, um, we went to see this movie. Um, and it was about the Patterson-Gimlin film. And, oh, did you see the tour when Roger was there with the bench stirrup? Yeah. Stuff? Yeah, nice. and I was I was 11 years old when that came through, 11 or 12. And, of course, Casey's a couple of years younger than us. And I remember sitting there seeing that thing and watched that thing cro- walk across the screen, and it was like, oh, man, that's real, you know. Mm-hmm. And I just I just knew it had to be because, I mean, I, you know, growing up in the, in the late 50s, early 60s, you saw the hokey, you know, monsters in the movies. And, oh, sure. I mean, the, what was it, the, uh, the Legend of the Black Lagoon, all right, the Creature of the Black Lagoon. You know, when right. I was about six years old, that scared the snot out of me. Okay, but then uh-huh. I realized that's just some doofus in a you know in a scuba outfit with you know bad hands. But um, I saw that thing and I was mesmerized by what I saw. And that, that little clip kept going and over and over. And the guy got up there and talked about it, talked about his experience and how it all how it all worked out, and explained to us that the thing was actually a lot closer than it seemed in the camera footage. Um, mm-hmm. That was just the nature of the of the footage of the camera, and. I remember it was about an hour and a half, almost two hours that we were in there. And we ended up getting up and leaving after it was all over with, and we walked out. And I remember my, my dad's friend, Jack Bell, uh, looked over him. He says, well, Robert, what did you think? I know I said, Dad, what did you think? Is that thing real? And Dad says, he goes, well, son, he goes, it looked real to me. And Jack goes, ah, come on, Bob, it's just some guy in a monkey suit. And my dad looked at him, and he goes, Jack, there's more things out there that you and I don't know about than we can count, okay? It looked real to me. So... That was, you know, that was my dad, you know, and every kid looks up to his dad, you know. So I'm of thinking, dad thinks it looks real. I'm good to go. <laughs> but of I, course, uh, you know, what, what's really interesting about the Patterson-Gimlin film is that the more you look at it, the the longer you look at it, and with the right kind of eyes, like a specialist's eyes, for example, like an anatomist's eyes, right. um, the more real it becomes. Um, only the only people that write it off very quickly tend to be the ones that give it a cursory glance and don't spend any time looking into it. Because and it's like the Bigfoot phenomenon in general. The people who have the easiest time it off are the ones with the least amount of information. And isn't that right. the way it always is? Well, that you know that's that is so very true. I know that uh, uh, the first time I ever heard of Dr. Jeff Meldrum, um, I was reading a paper that he wrote on that film. Okay. And his observations, and of course he uh, he is um, he's a professor in Idaho someplace, uh, University of Idaho, I believe. Um, yes. Totally here's totally. here's a guy that sticks his neck out and says, you know what? I look at this thing and this is what I see. And of course, um, in the world of academia, I don't need to tell you that if you stick your neck out there so far, there's always somebody looking to to become upwardly mobile and see you go away. Okay. Correct. Um, <laughs> They'll blow you out of the water. But, you know, he, he had so many different points about that thing that when you looked at it uh, from the perspective where he was looking at it from, you know, I found it real hard to dispute anything he said. Um, and, you know, this thing was back in the 60s, 
okay? And I remember, like everybody listening, remembers the the hokey Planet of the Apes shows, okay? Um, those things were so, you know, blatantly cheesy. It wasn't even funny. I mean, you could tell. I mean, Roddy McDowell looked like Roddy McDowell, just sans hair, okay? But uh, you know, this it wasn't a it wasn't a a monkey suit, which. Which kind of brings me to a question, real quick. I had I had a couple of emails and a phone call and um, about a gentleman up in Yakima, Washington, that allegedly, you know, he'll he'd be more than happy to sit down and if you buy him a couple of adult beverages, he'll be more than happy to tell you the story how he wore this suit and hung up in a bar there in in Yakima, Washington, and it was him that did it. And what what do you know about that? What can you tell me about that? Well, a number of years ago, uh, a book was written by a gentleman named uh, Greg Long, and the book's name was The Making of Bigfoot. And the centerpiece of that book was a man named Bob Hieronymus, which is the gentleman you're referring to from Yakima, Washington. Um, Bob Hieronymus knew Roger Patterson, the videographer, although it wasn't video, it was film. Um, he, he knew Bob Gimlin, who was the other uh, witness that was there that day, and also the only surviving witness from that day, and I might also say a personal friend of mine. Um, I know Bob very well. I've been in the woods with him a lot. Um, but Bob Hieronymus claims to be the guy in the suit. Now, I read the book when it came out because, you know, it's good to know what's going on in the Bigfoot community, especially when you're a Bigfoot nerd like me. Um, the the book is riddled with errors, um, factual errors. It's also riddled with um, emotional slants on things um, and, and, and suspicion. Um, he would do something like, uh, for example, Roger rented that camera, okay? But Roger was a flaky guy, and in my opinion, being a teacher, I would suspect he probably had ADHD as well by the actions and, and, and <laughs> what he did in general. You know, because I, I, I was an elementary school teacher, fourth, fifth, sixth grade for, you know, 13 or 14 years. Um, and he shows a lot of characteristics in his choices um, that might indicate that he had something like that going on. If not ADHD, maybe ADD or something like that. Um, and when Roger rented that camera... He basically didn't return it because he forgot about it for a long time. Um, and, and then, but he was a flaky guy in general um, in a lot of ways, but that doesn't mean he was dishonest. In fact, a lot of people who personally know him and were interviewed for that book were very upset at Mr. Long after he wrote it because they felt that they were taken out of context. They felt that um, they were framed to throw their friend Roger under the bus when that's not what they meant at all because there's a far difference between being slightly irresponsible and being a lying hoaxer. And Greg Long tried to frame Roger as a lying hoaxer. So, like, Roger didn't um, return the camera on time. And so Greg kind of, uh, um, in his book, angled that like he was trying to steal the camera. You know, and so that's what I meant by, like, an emotional slant to some of his writing in the book. Um, And as far as the factual errors um, of, of the film itself, he describes two different suits that he wore in that one film and neither of them really match what you see. And the two different locations that Bob Hieronymus said the film location was because um, are both wildly inaccurate. The closest to the film location he got was about 20 miles away. Um, and the furthest he got was more like 35 or 40 miles away, just a little bit north of Hoopa um, in Northern California. And I've been to the film site. It's, I've been, in fact, I've been to the film site probably more than a dozen times. Um, I've been there with Bob Gimlin, you know, with the man himself. And it is not easy to get to today, but back in 1967, it was a harrowing adventure to get back there, to say the very, very least. 
Highway 96, which is a two-way lovely paved road going through the lovely Klamath Mountains, at that time was a one-way dirt logging road with logging trucks barreling up and down it. When, when Greg Long through Bob Hieronymus, or actually Bob Hieronymus describes through Greg Long's book where the film site is, he casually mentions, oh, it's five miles because of Hoopa or something like that. He couldn't be more wrong about where that thing was filmed. And, and certainly, if he ever did make that journey in 1967, um, he would have remembered it to his dying day because it was not easy to get back there. And really, and the, the whole Greg Long, Bob Hieronymus thing has been put to bed for so long. Very few people actually think that that's the real deal anymore at all. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it kind of goes back to saying, you know, like once you do your research and start looking into things, you start realizing what the truth actually is. But rumors are very easy to pick up, especially in the big community. And, um, and they're just easier because it, it saves you a lot of time and work of actually reading things and like learning stuff. And well, rumors are just you know, easier vicious, to run with. Vicious, ugly rumors, it doesn't matter what community it's in. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, what, what was True. it my dad used to say, a, an ugly story about somebody will travel faster than a brush fire in a Kansas wind, you know, and that's absolutely, a, absolutely. But, well, you know, that's the thing, you know, if people speak ill about you, be sure to live in a way where no one will believe them. Um, when you know Bob Gimlin personally, that's the way he lives. Right. You, like all, he, Bob gets slandered all over the place, but I know Bob, um, no one's going to tell me that Bob is anything less than a cowboy gentleman. I know the man pretty well. Um, I, he, we, we consider each other friends. Um, nothing anybody can tell me about Bob would change my mind on that. Well, I've, I've seen several interviews, not several, I've seen a few interviews with him over the years, and I've read some, some stories about him. And um, the one thing that I can honestly say is that for something that happened to a guy over 40 years ago, um, his story hasn't changed one syllable from from day one to the present, you know. No. Um, and unless, of course, you're a pathological liar, uh, that's something that's hard to pull off. Or I'm sorry, or or a, or a politician. But um, oh yeah, you know, that's, that's something that's something that's hard to, to pull off. But um, you know, I just as a footnote here, you know, people were talking about the big thing, and Bigfoot didn't start until the 50s or the early 60s. And um, you know, the thing about it is is that the stories about people, wild men, have been around for a long time. Um, Ivan Sanderson wrote a book that I found in high school, and it was old by the time I found it. This is back in the early 70s, um, and it was about three inches thick. And it was about, you know, these types of things all over the globe. And he was one of, I think, probably one of the first cryptozoologists that actually, I don't know if I want to use that phrase for him, but he he was a scientist, but he was also an author, and he got a lot of he he compiled a, a prodigious amount of stuff. It may not all have been accurate, but he did a heck of a job of getting all these these things together. And I know there yeah, was a lot of stories. Actually, his book that got Roger Patterson interested in the subject. Right. So I mean, it was it was around long before that. And you know, for those guys out there that have like you know this this thought that this is just an un, a new and recent thing, um, I remember a story about uh, Daniel Boone claiming he shot. Uh, one of the booger men, or whatever you want right. to call it, over there in Kentucky, uh, when Kentucky was still the dark and bloody ground, where the Indians that was their their hunting territory, and I remember reading um, excerpts from some of the mountain men uh, logs and stuff that they kept, where uh, Jedediah Smith found some huge tracks that could not have belonged to a grizzly bear. I mean, this man lived in the outdoors. He lived next to these things. He got clobbered and beat up by them on occasion. 
he knew what tracks were what and what weren't. And he saw tracks in, a, in this mountain pass that just flat amazed him. And he knew they weren't a grizzly bear. The man would know the difference. <coughs> Excuse me. So, I mean, there's stories of this thing that go all the way back to the early colonial times um, down in Georgia. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's just it's not like it just suddenly, oh, hey, there's a film now. Everybody's seen these things. They've been around a long time. It's just nobody really wanted to talk about it for lots of reasons, you know. Um, but... Yeah, Ivan Sanderson, well, they, he, had, he had an amazing book. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, they are a very rare and elusive species, and that hasn't changed for millennia. Um, the word Bigfoot was given to the American vernacular in 1958 by a man, a man named Jerry Crew. Um, he, because uh, Bigfoot was walking across the road building crews, like the road, the road that they were building at the time in Bluff Creek and left Prince, and he eventually cast one and brought it to the newspaper. And that's how Bigfoot, that word, was given to the um, English language here in America. However, in the 20s, there was a man, a, a school teacher actually, um, named um, G.W. Burns, um, he, uh, who lived up in Harrison Hot Springs, British Columbia. A teacher, I believe, on the Chehalis Indian Reservation, and at that time uh, they were talking about these giant hairy, in, these giant, this race of giant hairy Indians that lived in the woods, and um, the Chehalis word for them was eventually anglicized by by Mr. Burns into the word Sasquatch, and that was in the 20s. But if you look into the 1800s, and actually a good friend of mine um, does this. Um, uh, my friend Scott does this. He mines the Library of Congress website and does searches for things like gorilla, um, which is, by the way, gorillas were, were discovered in 1850-ish, I think 49 or 51, and then the mountain gorilla was discovered in 1901. So um, mining things for gorilla, you get a lot of interesting stories about people seeing um, bipedal gorillas in the second half of the 1800s here in North America, and clearly gorillas don't live here. If you look right. up wild man or any of that sort of thing, there are there are a, a dozens and dozens and dozens of newspaper accounts from the 1800s that describe the same thing that witnesses today keep seeing. The 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 the, the species is persistent in our culture, and that is because they're real. They're actually here. Well, you know the Indians. Um, I mean, you go all over the West Coast, like where you're at. Um, the Indians, all the way from you know California, actually Mexico, all the way up to the coastline there, all the way up into you know Canada and and Alaska. This this they don't talk about this animal as if it's some mythical being. They they talk about it in the same sense that they would a bear or a wolverine or a moose or a caribou or you know uh, woodland bison. I mean, it's just yeah, we got these and these and these and these and these, and they don't even. You know, they don't even categorize it as something other than what's there, okay? Um, I'm afraid I just lost Cliff. Um, yep, he dropped off the line somehow. Um, but um, the thing about it is the, the story about these things has been around for a long time, and uh, and I'm going to do – I'm going to try to get him back here real quick. Hang on, ladies and gentlemen. I'm trying to get Cliff back here. For some reason or another, he dropped off the air. Might have had a low battery. I think he was calling it. There he is. I don't know what happened there. I'm looking at three or four bars on my phone. I don't know what dropped, so I apologize. That's okay. That's all right. No reason to freak out. You know, I'm not charging you by the hour to be on here. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good thing. No, I was just talking about how in the Indian cultures, this story about these guys have been around for a long time. 
Forever. And they talk about them as if they were just any other animal that they deal with. And here's one thing that I did find funny. It's not really funny, but it kind of makes you sit up and look at it. Um, the Vikings, long ago, showed up on our shores, okay, on the eastern continent, eastern part of the continent. And they they remarked in their stories. They didn't have a written language, per se, but they, they told the stories. That's how they shared stories, just like the American North American Indians. Um, they They would share stories. And one of the stories that they told was how they were astonished at the, the people dwelling here were large and hairy. Now, if you think of what a Viking looks like, okay, Vikings were pretty stout individuals for the, for their time in, in Europe, and they were hairy. So they didn't think of themselves as being hairy. So you got to kind of wonder, what the heck were they looking at? You know? <laughs> and they thought it might have been a little hairy. So, but... Yeah, that was, anyway. that was Leif Erikson. Yeah, that was Leif Erikson. I forgot the, it was like 1080-something, if I remember right. Um, yeah, he, he uh, that, that was part of his journal or something. I don't remember exactly how that actually went down. But, yeah, um, he wrote about something that could very well have been Sasquatches at the time. Well, it, it was definitely long before the film. So I guess what, oh, yeah. I guess what I'm trying to say is there's been a long history of these, of these creatures, not just here in the United States, but all over the world. Um, in, in every climate you can imagine, with with I, I'm thinking the exception of the South Pole, um, so this is not it's not just indicative to the United States and North America. These things, there's there's stories uh, from the native people about these things, literally all over the world, all the way back to biblical times. Okay, um, so anyway, um, one of the one of the questions that one of the folks out there had, um, I know you guys are just literally. Days away from starting season three filming, okay. That's correct. Um, how do you guys how do you guys decide what states you go to? I mean, do you just you, you look at current events, or I mean, how does that decide? Or is that something the producers decide, and you guys just roll with the flow? A little bit of both. A little bit of both. Um, the the number one indicator about where we go is what kind of evidence we could pull for that state that would look good and be fun on TV. Because, you know, I mean, uh, Bigfooting is my everyday life, and um, but I'm hired to know. And so it's kind of a, a mix of a little bit of, like, what footing is, like, what I say real Bigfooting. And we do, a, I mean, the show's pretty good at keeping it real as far as that goes. Um, but also there's a, there's a need for television because, frankly, and, I, and your audience is full of hunters, you know, think about how you hunt. That doesn't make really good TV. You know, sitting quietly in a blind for six hours is really boring TV is what it comes right. down to. Right. Um, so we, we need we, we tend to we tend to go for things that are visual, you know, like uh, films, for example, or photographs. And you know, once a season or so, we sneak in something like a vocalization or you know something a little off the beaten trail a little bit. So um, we start looking at evidence, and then we start, and, and then from there, if we can get a hold of the person um, who owns the evidence, and we you know permission to use it. Um, we start drumming up witnesses in the area, and we start looking at um, databases and finding out the history of Sasquatches in that area um, and making contacts and all that sort of stuff, more or less how it's done. And um, each cast member has some input, and, uh, you know, like uh, Matt Moneymaker, who runs the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization, the BFRO, um, he has the largest current database on Bigfoot sightings. 
so a lot of the witnesses we use have reported have, have reported sightings to Matt's website in the past. But you know, I've got my own thing, and I've got a, two different websites: NorthAmericanBigfoot.com and CliffBerrickman.com. One's a blog, and one's a uh, information website. Um, I get a lot of reports um, reported to me on a weekly basis, maybe a dozen or two every single week now. Um, and I'm working on getting my own database so uh, the public will have access to the information that I've been given by witnesses. Um, but so I'm asked, like, Cliff, we're going to go to Montana. Do you have anybody? You know, and I, I go through my stuff and I say, well, I got this person, this person, and this person, and this footprint. So then we just kind of start adding to the show. Once we have the centerpiece of the reason we're going to a state, then it's just about ornamentation after that. Like, like what kind of cool sightings can we look into from there? And then sometimes, honestly, it, sometimes it doesn't even matter because we may have like two or three witnesses lined up that we know have good stories. But when we go to a location and do a town hall meeting, we always hear stories that have never been told before. That they've never reported it to anybody. And those stories just blow us away. Mm-hmm. And those are people that, you know, you just got to wonder. They didn't, they didn't tell anybody about what they saw, but here they stand up in front of other members of the community. And you see some of those looks on the faces of the people in the background. And I and they're looking at them like, oh, God, here he goes. Or oh, what's she going to say? You know, you kind of see those faces on some of those un, unsettled glances, little nervous looks. But, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's – I've seen I've seen a few of those shows where you guys actually kind of went, uh, oh, what the heck, you know. Um Cliff's phone just nuked him again. I don't know what's going on with that guy's phone, but he just dropped it again. So um, I'm thinking. Are are you playing field hockey or something over there in Florida, or what are you doing, dude? I'm I'm hanging out in a hotel room, man. I I got in a couple of hours ago, and I'm hanging out in the hotel room. In fact, I just got to the hotel room seven minutes before I Do you think maybe if you plug your phone into your charger, would that help? I'll try it. Okay, because I mean, that can't can't hurt. um, It can't hurt Anyway, uh, I was just. Oh yeah, there is the show. How we get? All right. But whatever you like. There we go, man. No, it's whatever you like. You're the guest. Oh. <laughs> Well, yeah, um, so, but that's basically how we get the show. We get a centerpiece, and we start drumming up witnesses and fun things to do in that area. Um, I try to stay out of pre-production, though, agree, because a lot of times just the nature of making a television show before you actually get there, um, you think you're going to use people, and then you have to back out at the last minute because of some you know, budget reason or schedule reason, and then sometimes people get their feelings hurt and stuff. And so I try to stay out of all that um, right. and let the producers be the bad guys and you know, ignorance is bliss, and I'm the happiest guy alive when it comes to making a TV show. Sometimes, so. Amen. I hear you, brother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. Cool. Well, you know what? Last, let's talk about last season. Okay. How long have you been doing this? Twenty, roughly twenty, twenty-five years. Well, a little, a little less than twenty. I think that um, this will be my eighteenth year of doing field work. And okay. you know, you add a couple years on top of that of reading everything I can, and you know, et cetera. So, so research and field work. Close to 20 years, right? If, mm-hmm. if you take preliminary stuff. Okay. So what has been, during during the filming and stuff, since you guys are going into areas that are obviously hot spots, and, I mean, there's there's a good chance that you're going to have something happen that's going to keep the, the audience going, ooh, did you hear that, or did you see that, or da-da-da. What last year was, in last season's shows, what was probably the most 
uh, wow moment for you, or the or the kind of holy crap moment. You know that I mean. Well, there were, there were a couple. There were a couple. Like when, when we stumbled across those prints in Georgia, um, right. that was pretty. That, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, those prints um, have a kind of a. We're, I, I've been. I, I've consulted Dr. Meldrum on those, and, and Jeff thinks that. Um, uh, Jeff thinks that they may actually be bare, double-stepping, that have been washed out and fooled me in the ground. And I'm open to that. And, in fact, if you go to my website, cliffgarrickman.com, I have a footprint database, and I put those casts in the database with the um, dialogue, the email dialogue, going back and forth between Dr. D- Dr. Meldrum and myself, um, you know, it, just for the sake of full disclosure. At the time, that blew me away. But looking back now, I would say that those vocalizations we got in Oregon um, in Malala were phenomenal. Um, I, the recorder, it was my recorder actually that captured them, doesn't do them justice. They were much louder and much cooler in person. But, you know, if you ever do any field recording, you're going to find that's true of everything you record. Right. Um, beyond that, I mean, we got really solid stuff in New York in the Catskill Mountains in Season 2. Um, those knocks we heard at the baby site, the baby film site, was uh, they were phenomenally loud and very close, like clearly Sasquatches. Um, uh, the vocalizations we got at the end of the New York episode were very interesting because if they were not Bigfoots, the only other explanation would be wolves. But wolves have been reported to be extinct from New York in general and certainly southern New York since the 1600s. So whether we got wolves or a Bigfoot, either way, it's a big thing. So that was really cool, too. And, well, of course, um, what, Utah, there's another one, Utah, which won't even be seen until we start showing season three. Um, I got vocalizations um, recorded on my birthday when I was, you know, waist deep in snow, pretty much. It was an amazing evening. So that was really exciting, too. Which which episode was it where Renee literally about crapped herself? Because whatever it was, was, I mean, I, I, I'm sorry to say it, but that first season, the, the recording equipment you guys had out in the field was was it, it was sad. Um, mm-hmm. But you could tell from her body reaction that whatever it was she heard was was close enough to you know make her fear you know get get a real strong dose of God all of a sudden. But it, well, it that could be either one or two microphone. things. Renee got the crap scared out of her twice um, so far that she can't explain, but she's still holding on to her skepticism. One of those things was in um, in Alaska. Um, Bobo and she were out on a, uh, on a night investigation together, and Bobo describes the sound as a, a, a man slamming a sledgehammer against rocks about you know 100 feet behind them. Um, so she doesn't have an explanation for that, and you know that scared the crap out of her, as you said. And the other one would be in the California episode when we when we investigate the Patterson Gimlin film. At the end of that episode, we're on the Hoopa Indian Reservation, and I'm with Renee that time. And right. I'll, I'll never forget this, you know, because she was hearing a whistle or something, and I, I heard a whistle as well, so I was copying it. And all at once, I hear, well, what I heard was a rock going through the trees hitting the trunk of a tree perhaps 30 feet above the ground and then falling through the branches and hitting the ground. It's, mm-hmm. and it, to me, I, I giggled. I said, they're cool, they're here. Renee and the producer and the sound girl and um, the camera person, they all jumped with their eyes as big as saucers because um, we were out in the middle of nowhere. No one knew where we were because we didn't even know we were going to go there that night. Um, and And a rock was thrown. I don't... Even Renee will say a rock was thrown. 
there's really no other explanation for the noise we heard. And right. what throws rocks? People and Sasquatches. Well, on on this continent, that's that's only two options. I mean, right, uh, a great ape. Yeah, anyway. there's, there's nothing else. There's nothing else that can throw a rock in North America. Okay, except for uh, a hominid of some sort. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, the thing is, there. Oh man, I got I got to be brutally honest with you. The producers, you guys need to lose those little goony goo goo cameras that they got in your faces all the time. I mean, um, there was some other show that used to be on. Those things just, I mean, they would drive me nuts. You know, trying well, to walk through stuff. Too. God, yeah, you can. it's really hard to go off trail and stuff, but you know the the producers love those authentic face shots that they get with those. Um, they they like seeing the expressions on our face. They like having those close ups because we're out there. Um, you know, like we're out there in teams of two, but there's a producer, sometimes a sound person, and a camera person. They can't. We only have one camera with us, and they can't get all the angles that they want. That kind of helps them. I don't like them either. I don't like that they bathe me in infrared light. Um, by the way, we are totally dark. You, you see us because it's infrared night vision stuff, but right. I don't see anything when I'm wearing those things, um, which makes it even harder to navigate through the woods with those things on. I'm with you. I'd love to lose them, but I, but I, at the same time, we're making a TV show, and that's just part of the gig, unfortunately. Well, you I mean, I, I understand that, but I'm just thinking, you know, the one thing, the one thing I think people have to understand is what you guys are doing It's an entertainment you know, uh, venue here. Um, it's not like if, th- if this was you actually trying to go out and catch a catch one of these animals, this is not how you would do it. Okay, no, not I how mean, I do as, it. as an outdoorsman myself, I can I can tell you right now that if I wanted to go out and um, get the definitive picture or get the definitive here we go carcass if need be of one of these things, um, I wouldn't be tra- traipsing along with five or six other people in in a convoy or having a big hootenanny camp out or anything like that. It would be me and whatever it is I'm going to use to, to get the definitive shot one way or the other on this thing, a ghillie suit, no scent. I mean, I'd, I'd be com- just like just like I was out hunting, you know, um, a massive deer or, or a big old elk, you know, something that, yeah. that knows every square foot of their living room, which is the woods, that's their living room, okay? Um if something's out of, out of place, they're going to know it. Just like if somebody walked into your living room and plopped down a, a five-pound bag of something and left it there, you'd notice it pretty quick. Well, um, I'm sure anything else out there would too. But <clears throat> the thing is, you know, what you guys are doing is, is entertaining, and I mean it really is, but um, when you're actually doing research on these things and, and out in the field looking for them, it's an entirely different approach. Right. Very, very often. But, you know, when you look at the show, and I do get a tremendous amount of criticism about the way we do things. Um, but, again, as you pointed out, we're making a TV show. It's entertainment, really. But luckily, there's three diehard Bigfooters on this entertainment show that that we can, we constantly get in arguments and we butt heads against the production company about how to do Bigfoot stuff. Um, you know, but I understand their side, and they understand our side much better now than they did in first season. And, and we've both made great strides to accommodate each other. Um, but you're absolutely right that this isn't the way I would do things. But at the same time, look at what actually is real in the TV show. Um, right. I think this is one of those times when people just focus on the negative. Like that's not how I would do it. 
Yeah, but look what we're really doing. We're really investigating films that supposedly show Sasquatches. We're really going to the exact location whenever possible to do so. I'm there taking measurements and writing nerdy notes in my notebook, and, and I, I write up things after the episode explaining what I, I learned there. We're interviewing real witnesses, usually right where they saw the Bigfoot. We're going to town halls, and we're, we're soliciting random sightings from the community, and we always get new ones we've never heard. That's, and, we're, and you know what? Even though we have those silly cameras on us, and even though we have a, a camera guy and a producer with us, we're really going out and trying the techniques that we know work in the field. There's a lot of real Bigfoot stuff happening in every episode. A lot of people see that, but um, a, a very small but vocal number of people um, see what we're doing wrong and focus on that instead. Um, it, I know lots of Bigfooters that don't go out in the woods and, and try to get these things close to them. They just look in the witnesses. Well, we do that in the show. I know some people who don't talk to witnesses because they're, they're like introverts. They like um, doing investigations at film sites or like analyzing uh, films. Well, that's in the show. Um, we, we have so many facets of Bigfooting and what Bigfooting really is in the show. Um, yeah, and we're making a TV and we're going to handicap that but there's an awful lot of real stuff going on, and I think sometimes that gets lost in the fray. Right. I, I can see that because everybody's looking for the dramatic moment, and it's the nuances that make the experience uh, what, well, what's tangible and what's real. I mean, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that's just I mean that's just my way of looking at it. But you know, um, I've I've been asked by some of the people on the on the site here. Um, do you have any kind of an idea? Uh, for the next season, what states you might be visiting? I mean, can you talk about that, or is that kind of one of those things you're not allowed to talk about? I said, you know, that's one of the things that I, I'm not so sure I'm allowed to talk about. Um, okay. But I, I know that it's already leaked out on the Internet that um, we're going to go to California and Arizona. Um, uh, in fact, I, we start out in California and then move on to Arizona afterwards. But um, I, I know most of the rest of the states, but I, I think I'm, I should probably hold back just so I don't want to get in trouble or anything like that. Right. But I also will say that we're going to go international for a couple episodes this next season as well and do things overseas that have never, ever been done overseas. We're going to actually apply the North American techniques um, to these creatures that live on other continents to see if they work, and no one's ever done that. Huh. Well, that'll be interesting. That yeah, it's going to be fantastic. I'm really excited about it. And of course, we're going to continue, you know, having one guy um, stay out in the woods for three nights alone with a camera guy, and, and not not like a big camera either. Just a little handy cam. And the person who stays out with us, his name is Tyler Bounds. Um, he's one of uh, the best Bigfooters I know, and he's a good friend of mine. And he's he's the real deal. He uh, yeah. does a, a, an occasional article for uh, he he like tries gear out for Backpacker Magazine and the whole thing. Um, he's the real deal, and he's the cameraman. And trust me, he's no professional cameraman. He's a lot better now than when we started, but um, he, he's actually a Bigfooter with a camera in his hand. He's not a camera guy who goes Bigfooting sometimes. Um, and well, he's going to be out with Tyler, us. And we're gonna... I'm, I'm, I'm hoping he's listening to tonight's show because I, I really wanted to get him on here uh, one of these nights you know, to talk about this stuff from, from being behind the camera. Because um, a lot of times, as, as you and I both know, um, not for me looking for this guy out in the woods, but I know that um, in my own experiences that a lot of times once the camera's turned off, all of a sudden what you've been sitting there waiting for all day or all morning or whatever, all of a sudden it just swoops through or flies over, and you're like, oh, crap. You know, oh, yeah, everybody just yeah. says, we're not having it, you know. And it's like the stuff that doesn't make 
doesn't make the, the floor of the, of the cutting room. It's just like, man, you should have seen it. Well, where was your camera? Um, it was laying down. You know, it's kind of well, like yeah, that. that's bigfooting. That's totally yeah. bigfooting. You know, everybody knows about Murphy's Law, and it's very clear to me that Murphy was a Sasquatch because the, the luck that's introduced into bigfooting is usually bad luck. Well, you know, the thing about it is a good guy that uh, that could attest to that is that uh, guy that does the survival show, that Les, what's his face? Les Stroud. Uh, yeah, the one that used to be a royal, what was it? He was in the Royal Marines. Um, I guess when he was up there in Alaska, you know, you wouldn't know it watching that series, but w- while he was trying to put together a shelter, um, he had something come up from behind him and that, you know, he's pretty familiar with what bears sound like and what they don't sound like. And apparently he had an experience with something that came up behind him in the woods there and uh, sounded like, well, sounded like a silverback gorilla. and just Yeah, he described it as a gorilla sound. That's correct. Yeah, completely unnerved him, you know, because you could tell in the show when that episode, when that part of the show happened, um, because it was like, um, you know, he was talking about there's there's brown bear or there's grizzlies or brown bears, there's black bears, and there's, I guess, other kind of bears. You know, <laughs> and he seemed a little, and he seemed a little reluctant to go jogging back to that stream and uh, get get water after that. Which who could blame him? You know, um, but you know, one thing I, I want to ask, and some of the some of the questions that came about uh, today, one of the things was dogs, tracking dogs. Okay, um, I see. You know, these guys go out in the woods with pheromone chips and stuff and try to lure these animals in. And you hear these stories about, oh, we had some tracking dogs, and they went out in the woods, they all disappeared, and we found their carcasses two years later, and blah, blah, blah. You know, how many of those uh, <laughs> how many of those stories are actually, do you think, are factual um, when it comes to that? And, I mean, is there a reason that you can think of why a dog would not follow one of these things? I mean... Well, um, dogs do seem to act a little, a little, some dogs, I should say. You know, just, you know, dogs are like people. They're individuals in their own way. Um, dogs, generally speaking, don't want anything to do with Sasquatches. They know they're around before, they're, before the people do. You know, the dogs know that Bigfoot's there before people do. Um, but that's not true all the time. For example, Monkey, who is uh, Bobo's dog, um, uh-huh. who was on the California episode. And actually, Monkey will be making some appearances in season three as well. Um, but Monkey... Uh, I could tell he was hamming it up for the camera. You guys got to put him in his place. Oh, well, yeah. Well, Bobo <laughs> or Monkey is uh, true on both sides. Um, but, yeah, Monkey actually gets excited <laughs> when, when Bigfoots are around. And, and and Bobo's opinion has actually played with Bigfoots before. Um, gone out in the woods and, like, played around and made all our play noises and stuff and came back when there there might have been a Bigfoot around, you know. Um, sometimes uh, dogs come out or go out into the woods and don't come back, and they find their carcasses ripped in half. Um, police dogs, um, generally speaking, I, I just got a report out of the uh, Olympic Peninsula in Washington um, where a dog was – this is a great story, too. This happened in the late 70s. Um, th- these cops were given chase to um, a, a fugitive who was, um, you know, running – he was driving away very, very quickly. He went around a corner. He's, he rolled his car into this field. He got out and ran into the woods. Cops were um, on the scene within a matter of you know, 10, 15 seconds. They let the dog loose. Um, the dog ran into the woods and then ran back to the police officers and cowered behind them. Mm-hmm. And then like the cops were going, what in the world, right? And then about three or four minutes later, the fugitive came out of the woods with his hands up and said, um, I would rather be with you guys than in there. Something's in there. 
And the cops went, what? You know, and, like, they he, they cuffed the guy, put him in the car, and then the, the police officers uh, made a line along the forest and then pushed into the forest and looked around. And they didn't see any Sasquatches or animals, but they did find a trackway of 18-inch footprints in the ground that were very, very fresh. And they actually cast them. And a couple of those casts are still in existence out in private hands on the Olympic Peninsula. So uh, that's an example with evidence that that story actually happened because there's a track of, um, associated with that story that uh, dogs, even police dogs that are very, very well trained, sometimes don't want anything to do with the Bigfoots. Well, you know, I could, I guess I could understand that, but, you know, you'd think that a dog that was that was trained to, to follow something, they wouldn't hesitate. I mean, um, these are dogs that would chase, you know, mountain lions and bears um, mm-hmm. that would make pretty short work of them, too, you know. Yeah, uh, but I don't know much about hunting with dogs, but I, and I'm sure your audience does. Um, but isn't it true that they are trained specifically for the species? Not really. I mean, it's the thing. It's like, uh, well, mountain lion dogs, it depends on the guy that's hunting them, okay. Um, they'll come across a track. He'll he'll point the track out to them, or they'll find the track when they're. A lot of times they drive down the woods, the backcountry, the, the the roads and stuff, and they'll see where a cat has crossed the road, and they'll put the dogs down. They'll get a sniff of that and they'll go. All right, and they'll they'll follow it. Um, they know that's uh, the the owners kind of told them this is what you go after. Um, you know, there's there's uh, you you hear stories about dogs all the time that. Um, refuse to follow them or whatever, and you just gotta gotta kind of wonder how much moonshine was involved with some of these stories. You know? mm, yeah, possibly. But, uh, I do you know, know that one. Th- I, I was speaking to Dr. Meldrum this past week because some very interesting things were happening, and um, he told me that if you know if I could get dog if I could get him on a, a a super fresh line of tracks, he has access to tracking dogs um, by a, from a special tracker that he'd be willing to fly down. And actually, an opportunity like that did arise this past week, but it was a few days later than what could actually be done, uh, a few days after what would have been useful at that time. So, um, yeah, yeah. That, that off, there is a possibility that could still happen. And hopefully, if anybody's listening and you know, finds fresh tracks, you can let me know about it immediately, and we can do something about that. Okay. Well, very good. We'll be giving your phone number out at the end of the show if somebody wants to call. Actually, your your website, and they can contact you via email, okay? Um mm-hmm. Now, something else that I, I wanted to kind of touch on real quick. Um, in in season two, I mean, okay, you had a you had a few kind of omen seasons there, and I I got to tell you, I I don't know anything about Matt Moneymaker. Um, first of all, I think I would probably try to change my name, my last name, legally if I was him, because it's like okay, um, the the people that seem to some of these guys that seem to be attracted to the Bigfoot phenomenon. Um, it's like uh, Patterson and Gimlin. I mean, they went out there and they made a they made a film, um, and they made some money on it. But I mean, no great shakes. I mean, they're not. They're well, not Roger made money. Business. Actually, Bob was screwed out of his third. He never got any money, and even though he was promised a third for that film, and even though wow. he was screwed out of a tremendous amount of money from 1967, because you know Roger toured the country with that thing, right? Um, and Bob was promised one third of the revenue from that. Bob never got anything from that, and he still says it's the real deal. Okay. Well, I, I guess my thing is people have been making money off of Bigfoot either writing books um, in, in support of it or writing books and, and bashing it. I mean, as long as it's a subject, that's that's what they do. Um, and it seems like it's kind of crazy what they, you know, some of these guys are out there doing. And I think a lot of it that, that really 
what bothers a lot of people, and i got to be brutally honest with you here, what bothers a lot of people are some of the people out there that are making some of the most flaky hoax movies on the planet. And I'm not talking about the ones that are obvious hoaxes, that they're just being a bunch of doofuses, all right? I'm talking about the ones that are just crap that they're trying to pass off as a real deal. You know, back in the in the late 70s and the early 80s, there was there was a ton of these things that were showing up. Um, I remember seeing a, a movie of one where it was sitting on this bluff overlooking a creek, you know, it looked like some fat guy in a suit sitting there wobbling his legs around. And I mean, really? <laughs> it, just, mm-hmm. it just—it didn't look. I mean, are, are you familiar with the picture I'm talking about? Well, you know, I think I know which one that is, and I think that's an Ivan Marks picture, if I remember right. Ivan that's Marks. Who it was. Um, yeah, Ivan yeah. Marks actually uh, made a number of fake, fake um, pieces of footage. Um, quite a few of them, actually. But at the same time, in the very beginning, Ivan Marks actually ran across some real Bigfoot stuff, which kind of pollutes the water a little bit, you know. Um, and that happens sometimes where people have an encounter with a Sasquatch or something and they, they like the attention so they start hoaxing some things. Or perhaps they want to convince people that they were telling the truth so they introduce like uh, you know uh, fake evidence to try to convince people. So it, it's, there's, a lot of, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of polluted waters actually in Bigfoot land. Um, but, but I think that there's even more hoaxed videos now because of the advent of YouTube. And a lot of stuff goes on oh, yeah. YouTube. However, because there are so many things on YouTube, that also makes me think that, you know what, some of those things, particularly the ones that aren't very good, they might be legit. Mm-hmm. Well, isn't that how you guys found that one up in upstate New York? You know, uh, where... the, the New York one was the New York baby footage where the thing was right. hanging around in the tree. No, right. we knew about that for a long time. That actually came into the BFRO uh, back in the early 2000s, actually, and a man named Steve Coles, who uh, now – he's not part of the BFRO anymore, but um, he does his own website called The Squatch Detective. Um, he was the investigator on that and did a pretty good job looking into it. So that one did not come from YouTube because that was – I'm not even sure YouTube was really there yet, but – um, a lot of stuff gets sent to you know either the BFRO or my website, which you know not a, not necessarily affiliated with the BFRO, although like we work together all the time. You know, um, I'm right. I'm independent. I'm not really part of any group. I'm I'm an independent uh, Bigfoot researcher that works with anybody. Um, so like, which is great because you know if people send stuff to Matt's website, the BFRO, some people send stuff to my website, you know, and some people send things to AIBR, the Alliance of Independent Bigfoot Researchers, and or whatever, you know, Autumn Williams over at OregonBigfoot.com. Like, people send stuff to various people, and it's cool because that gives different people a chance to look at it and interpret it, and eventually, usually, all that stuff gets shared. So more eyes look at it, and perhaps the right kind of eyes. You know, like earlier mentioning Dr. Meldrum talking about the Patterson-Gimlin film. Well, mm-hmm. Dr. Meldrum is an anatomist. His his PhD is specifically bipedalism and the evolution that led to it. I mean, that's right. a special set of eyes for this field, and we all have our expertise. Like I'm not I'm not a great tracker. I'm a hobbyist. So when I get close to a really good tracker, I listen hard and I, I really try to see what they see. And the more information that's shared and the different avenues you think these uh, bits of data are submitted through, uh, the better it is for the reality of the species. Right. You know, speaking of tracking, I saw an episode. It wasn't on your guys' show. It was a different show. Um, And it was out, I want to say, in California someplace, or maybe it was in the Sierra Nevadas, um, where there was 
this family out by a lake and this thing, they didn't ever saw it until 15 years later. They were looking at old film from their vacation. They saw this thing that walked around the end of the lake there and, you know, was walking towards their kids. You, you know which film I'm talking about? Were there rocks in it? Oh, yeah, like, lots of rocks. Like pillory sort of rocks? Yeah, that's right. the Mono Lake footage. Okay. Now, was that in California? Yes, that's correct. That's the east side of the Sierra Nevada mountains near a little town called Lee Vining, just on the foot, like uh, on the east side of Yosemite National Park. Okay, because there was a gentleman in that particular show that was originally from South Africa, okay? And that gentleman was a tracker for the Rhodesian Gray Scouts, okay? Rhodesia is what is now known as Zimbabwe, okay? Do you remember him? No, and I never saw the program, but I'm familiar with the footage. Okay, well, I'm, I'm telling you, that's a guy, he could follow... Um, I believe Jeff Meldon was in that was in that episode. That guy ha- has a gift, and and trust me when I tell you, I've I've know some of those people. I've I've seen them do their thing, and it is nothing short of amazing. They they could track an ant across the parking lot. I mean, these guys are scary good. So it'd be nice if you could have somebody like that, and you know, in one of your spots where you got you know uh, recent recent uh, tracks where you could turn them loose because this would be this would be great. But. Um, you know, one of the guys out there wants to know. They see, you know, Bigfoot. They're primarily nocturnal, right? And do they actually travel? I mean, do they migrate? I mean, you hear, you hear, and I'm not, I'm not kind of disparage the guy, but I will say this: the, the, some of the comments that come out of Matt's mouth, like uh, the skunk apes smell like that because they live in caves where there's methane gas. Well, really, and then they would be dead because methane. Yeah, actually, kids. Matt wasn't the source for that. Um, a Native American <laughs> on the um, on 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 the reservation we visited said that, and the producers <laughs> thought it was they loved it and they put it in. So that wasn't a Matt thing, but I know what you're getting at. Um, Matt uh, Matt is a very strong-willed individual, mm-hmm. um, and and he. He, and what, even hanging out with Matt for any reason, he likes to figure things out. That's almost like a hobby of his, but I think it's just more of a, almost like a, a compulsion than a hobby. Um, if something is a certain way, and I'll say, oh, that's that way because this and this and this, that makes sense, and the people would probably do this. He's very analytical, like, and, like too analytical, really, sometimes. Um, but because of that, that does bleed over into the show a lot, and certainly he thinks he knows knows things about Bigfoots where I I kind of pick frame myself as I'm learning about Bigfoots all the time. Um but you know Matt's, Matt's like I said very very strong-willed individual. He knows well, a lot of one stuff. Thing, He's been doing this a long time. But yeah, um well, he doesn't know one everything. Thing to say, you know, I suspect that it's 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 a suspicion in the Bigfooting community that these animals or these these creatures uh, might use power lines as kind of a highway, you know, through the through the woods and stuff where they're clear cut. Or I suspect this may happen. He just he makes it a statement of fact, like you know I am I am Matt Moneymaker. I say it, therefore I am. You know, let it be written, let it yeah. be done. You know, kind of a deal. Yeah, that, that's correct, and that, that's that's part of his charm, I guess, for lack of a better term. However, but I will say this: um, a lot of sightings happen in and around power lines. In fact, a lot of footprint finds happen in those same locations. So um, his jumping to that conclusion that they use power lines as an avenue of travel is based on data. Now, do they actually use power lines for travel? Sometimes they do. For example, the 1982 Grays Harbor footprints cast by Dennis Hereford, those were cast in a power line cut. However, I have a different idea. 
Um, I, I know. Like, and I'll, I, this is one of the times where I'll say I know something, just like Matt says it all the time. Um, I know that there are a lot of sightings, coincidentally maybe, around power lines. Now, I start my, – my approach would be I would start wondering why would that be? And I have my own theory or hypothesis. Um, deer are, seem to be a major food item of Sasquatches. And deer and other herbivores depend on highly nutritious plants. They're not like elk. Elk can eat all sorts of stuff that holds almost no nutrition because they have, this, they have an enlarged intestinal tract to extract all the nutrients out of the food, which is why you often find elk under the tree canopy. But where do you find deer? You find deer on the side of roads, in meadows, power line cuts. In other words, the places where the sunlight hits the forest floor because that gives opportunities for those highly nutritious plants to come up. So uh, I think that the Bigfoots are foraging not only on the deer themselves, but also on the things that the deer are eating because they also probably really enjoy highly nutritious plants for well, eating, you know? I, you know, back back a long time ago when I first kind of got interested in this, it seemed to be the common thought process in the scientific community and the, and the Bigfoot community was that these things were herbivores. And I was kind of amazed when I saw that it's kind of taken the pendulum swung the other way to where now they're omnivores and they, they talk about deer being one of their um, food sources. I mean, when did when did this become, I guess, part of the, the, the lore? Uh, or the, it, the you know, it's always been there. It's always been there. See, the problem huh. is is with people, not the data. Because if you look back in John Green's data, and John Green published a book in 1976 that had something like 1,600 sightings in it. He'd been gathering sighting reports since the 40s, and a lot of those reports report deer being eaten by Sasquatches and other things like rabbits and birds and eggs and all sorts of things. Like He has a lot of data about what Sasquatches eat, as well as other plant items. The thing is, the thing that shifted is that people have gotten out of their rut because what, what, what people were saying is, like, I think uh, – no, people uh, they were saying that Sasquatches were herbivores because the other apes are herbivores. The closest thing that looks like a Bigfoot besides people are gorillas. Gorillas are pretty much strictly herbivores. The, all the protein they get is incidental, like through insects and things like that. Um, chimpanzees actually hunt. They're different. They're, they're hardcore omnivores, and that wasn't even discovered in, for, until, like, maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, So generally speaking, the extant apes, the ones that we know exist already, they're largely vegetarian only. So it was assumed by people that Sasquatches would be so as well. But those uh, those people who assume that never look at the data because the data is out there, and the data has been out there for decades. Okay. Well, which brings me to a question. Okay, if you if you have an area. I just I just read a story about this the other day and it had it had nothing to do with Bigfoot but you know my mind just kind of trickled over there because I was actually looking forward to this show and and some of the things that were kind of coming up. Um, a gentleman lives in Kentucky. Uh, he lives near Corbin, Kentucky, and he was posting on this forum that I was on how four years ago his place was basically overrun with deer. I mean it was it lousy with deer, and now he said they're they've all but disappeared and, he, and it's like not nobody's poaching them and he and he's you know, has deer plots and stuff out there. He still has, um, you know, some deer, but he says it's nothing like it used to be. And um, I noticed one of the guys posted up a smart comment. He goes, well, you got Bigfoots hunting your deer. And, you know, that kind of got everybody laughing and stuff. 
But it, it seemed like uh, it was kind of a nervous laugh. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> And it's like, well, yeah, yeah. I, I never thought that they would be real. <laughs> well, I just, I just never, never thought they'd actually be hunting deer. Um, yeah, I don't know why I would think that. I mean, there's obviously there's deer all over the place, and if they, it, it's going to take a lot of food to, to keep something that big, you know, happy. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, it's real interesting. A good friend of mine, her name is uh, Kathy Strain. Um, her 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 maiden name was, or her previous name was Moskowitz, Kathy Moskowitz, and she's pretty well known in the Bigfoot field for her work um, on the hairy man pick the grass and the Thule Indian reservations, and also her work on nests, Bigfoot nests. But um, she she's uh, an archaeologist. In fact, I think she's the head archaeologist for Stanislaus National Forest in California in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Um, and her gig basically is, you know, uh, kind of the interface between the Native American tribes in that particular national forest and the government and, like, archaeological sites that they uncover, um, the Native American archaeological sites, and, you know, making sure that any human remains get returned to the, um, the tribe and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and part of her job is to know where those archaeological sites are. So she has a map of her national forest where uh, she has a, uh, all, the, all those archaeological sites are plotted on the map. And she overlaid though she overlaid that map with a map of deer migration routes, and it turns out that they almost exactly coincide. Now that makes a lot of sense, right? Because we know that Native Americans depended on a lot of the ungulate herds as, as a food item. Um, however, she's a bigfooter, so she went one step further and overlaid bigfoot sightings as well. And lo and behold, they almost exactly are on top of each other. They they coincide. So there's a lot of interesting little points of data that one wouldn't expect that really points to Sasquatches not only predating the deer, but also other herbivores. They're not just going after deer because I don't know any, you know, red-blooded American Bigfoot that's going to turn down a free rabbit to eat. Um, right. They eat, they eat things like um, possums, raccoons, and, and worms, and I think skunks on occasion. I, I think that they eat pretty much anything that's smaller than them that's going to move around as long as it doesn't look too much. Well, I've, I've heard stories um, of, of people actually having, you know, roadkill animals um, drug off, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, dr- guys with wreckers are out there, you know, picking up the, the car in the middle of the night, you know, and the, the patrolman's already taken the, the members of the, of the party home that, you know, involved in the accident. And the uh, guy looks up and is completely freaked out because he sees this thing dragging an elk off, a young a young elk. And, I mean, it's as, you know, from me to, you know, the back of the yard here, away from him, he just kind of craps himself, jumps in his in his wrecker and takes off, you know. Um, <laughs> that would kind of make your evening kind of go sideways a little bit, I, I would think, because uh, elk are, are not easy to move. <laughs> no, you know, and there are a lot of stories of hunters bringing down deer and elk and whatnot and having a Sasquatch step out of the woods and drag it away right in front of their eyes, you know, 50, 60, 80 yards away or something. Um, and, of course, maybe th- some of those are stories and excuses why they didn't come home with a deer on that particular trip, but some of those are probably true. Um, and, and that's pretty interesting, you know, that uh, – that Sasquatches would learn the, the easy way to get a deer like that. And, in fact, there was a property in Oklahoma outside of Nobi um, that uh, had these, these guys, they were kind of, you know, backcountry folks, you know, you might call them rednecks or hillbillies, although I learned recently in Virginia that the correct term is Appalachian American. Um, so uh, they were, they, these guys would sit on their back porch on their property and spotlight deer and shoot from their porch. And they, they basically poached deer on their own property. And um, 
Bigfoots started hanging out, and they would start seeing these Bigfoots around. Basically, the Bigfoots put two and two together, and it was a very rare circumstance in a place where um, gunshots and lights didn't scare the Bigfoots away. It actually meant dinner time. And the Bigfoots would come around when they'd start seeing spotlights being shined in the woods and gunshots going off. But the reason there were Bigfoots on that property for so long is because these people were cultivating their property to attract deer. They were planting snap peas and, and you know, that sort of thing, like, like live plants to bring the deer herds in. And uh, they panicked and they wanted to know how to get rid of the Bigfoots. And so they said, well, get rid of your snap peas. Get rid of all these things that the deer are going to eat. Or, and then that'll get rid of the Bigfoots. And sure enough, it worked. Well, you know what? It, why? Oh, my God. You know what? If, if if they were really showing up like they claimed they were, why wouldn't they put some trail cams out and start shining a spotlighter out to get them to come in so they could get good pictures of them and stuff? And more That's importantly... That's a good question. There, there are footprint I mean, casts from that event. I don't think they got any photographs from that, but there's great stories. And that might... I, I, I There's a rumor. Like, again, I'm not involved in pre-production, but we might be doing something with that. I'm not sure for season okay. three. We'll have to find out. What are your, what are your What's your position on shooting one versus... I mean, do you actually think a good photograph is ever going to convince the scientific community? Because, to be brutally honest with you, um, bones, teeth, you know, a skull, that's kind of where they're at on these things, you know? Oh, I know. You really yeah, I know. Uh, and, uh, I, 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 a photograph will never be enough, and nor will a film. However, I personally think that unless you're going to eat something, you probably shouldn't kill it. Um, and, and I don't think the uh, killing something for the sake of human curiosity is a moral is a moral thing to do. And, but that's just me. That's just Cliff. You know. Well, then how do you, um, how I, do you go about substantiating the existence of one? I mean, do you carry elephant tranquilizers and the guns to deliver no, them into yeah, the yeah, woods? Or? No, tranquilizing is often suggested, but um, the the the. The problem with tranquilizing is that, number one, it's wildly inaccurate. Number two, the range of those darts is actually very, very small, you know, 30, 40 yards or something like that. It's hard enough to see a Bigfoot, let alone get close enough to shoot one in the dark with a tranquilizing dart. Also, um, the the drug itself is a highly controlled narcotic, and and you have to apply to get it, basically. And also, different drugs are used for different kinds of animals. We don't know anything about the metabolism of a Sasquatch. It would be very dangerous to under-drug it, or to overdrug it, for that matter. Um, it'd be dangerous probably to use the wrong kind of drug. So tranquilizing is actually one of the least likely ways that this is ever going to be done. Most okay. likely, some hunter somewhere will shoot one for some reason, and or somebody will hit one with a truck or something like that. Um, so once a, if, if a corpse is ever obtained, that'll do it. But it's not going to be me. And personally, knowing what I know about great apes, which we are a great ape, by the way. You know, that's our family, our biological family. Yeah, we're special in a couple ways, but not as many ways as people would like to think. Apes are problem-solving, intelligent, self-aware, sentient, thinking beings. They know that they exist, and they know that they're different than you. I'm not so sure, you know, rabbits know that they're different, so to speak. You know what I mean? Um, But apes are very much like us. And, in fact, um, studies over the last 10 or 15 years have indicated that all the great ape species have a language ability. They have, and basically language is representing abstract ideas with symbols. When you and I are speaking right now, we're, we're representing abstract ideas like the Bigfoot with the, with the sound Bigfoot, you know, with the sound. Apes lack the anatomy to make sounds for an oral language. However, 
like Coco the gorilla communicates with sign language. Um, chimpanzees and orangutans. What's that? Well, you're still there, but I don't know. I can't hear you. You're not. You're not. I'm not hearing you, Cliff. Okay, well, if your signal must have dropped, I mean, you're still on the air, on the air right now. Um, I was I was just going to say, you know, there's there's other, yeah, he dropped again. There's other um, animals that are very familiar with the sound of a gunshot, and they'll actually start showing up. That's one of the things about hunting bears up on Kodiak Island, for example. Um, <laughs> the most dangerous time after you uh, shoot one of those little deer up there, you know, those blacktail bucks is. After you, after you shoot one, uh, the bear starts showing up. You know, um, mm-hmm. we were just we were just talking about. I was just talking about. No, it was we. Yeah, my multiple personalities. Yeah, um, I'm sorry about. I don't know what that is. Yeah, that that's was, okay. That was different than the other one. You didn't fade away that time. It went and then it ended. I don't know what's up with that. I don't know. Um, we were just yeah. talking. I was just talking about Kodiak Island is one of those places where when you shoot like some of the little blacktail bucks up there, um, it becomes really dangerous because the animals the 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 bears know that means that there's fresh meat on the ground, and they'll get there in time. They can get the whole deer from you or the gut pile, one or the other. But they'll actually, mm-hmm. they'll actually show up to do that. So, um, and sasquatches get- do the same thing. One of the best places to go looking for sasquatches are hunter camps, where where hunters gut deer and gut elk and leave those things lying around. The bigfoots catch up on that. They, they they catch on to that, and they show up for that exact reason. Wow. Um, you know, I've I've heard story. People are always asking, why don't they find skulls? Why don't they find bones? Um, stuff like that. Um, has anybody ever shot one? And you know, I've been kind of snooping around on the internet, doing some doing some research. Um, what can you tell me? And what is your take on the the Sierra kills, where the bear hunter uh, allegedly right, shot right. through these things? What's up with that? What's your take on? Yeah, that gentleman. That gentleman's name is uh, Justin. Um, his story is basically he was out and he shot at and killed at least one juvenile and possibly an adult. Um, and, and my take on that is that I don't know. I don't know what the deal is. Um, several of my friends have interviewed the, the man extensively, and they believe what he said. Um, and uh, I know a couple other people who don't believe what he said. I have never had a chance to speak with the man, and I, I, so I, I would reserve judgment. Um, but rumors are flying, and of course, uh, supposedly a, f- a flesh sample had been obtained from that and is now part of a DNA study that is supposedly going to release the results in the next few months or so. Um, but and again, I don't, I don't know much about that because everybody's so tight-lipped about it, and there's lots and lots of rumors flying around the Internet, but I'm very hesitant to believe any of the rumors. I would rather wait and see. And then that's really my position, is that as far as, you know, the Sierra Kills or the um, the Melba Ketchum DNA stuff or the Erickson Project or any of those big things that are on the horizon here, I am taking a wait-and-see attitude. I just wish there would be a little bit less waiting and a little bit more seeing. <laughs> Good point. Well, you know, one thing I kind of noticed, and I, like I said, I've been looking around on the Internet for the last couple of days, last week or two, just trying to get a feel for the community, if you will. And it seems like there's a lot of people out there that if it's not their headline, if it's not their thing, uh, they're discrediting everybody else. You know, if it's, I mean, there seems to be a lot of that going on with some of the different groups. 
is is that because they nobody wants to share the knowledge? Everybody wants to be the first one to have definitive information, or I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I kind of I, uh, that's a really good question. It's something I've thought about for a while, and I will say right out, I don't know the answer to that. But what I'm kind of thinking it is to some degree is that um, if you are skeptical of something, I think that might make you look better. You know what I mean? Like you don't believe everything, right? I mean, the big criticisms of the shows, you know, Matt thinks everything's a Bigfoot. He doesn't think everything's a Bigfoot. You know, that's just the way the editors piece things together, you know. Right. He's not that bad. Um, he, he can be a little abrasive and a strong-willed, but that's not him thinking everything's a Bigfoot, you know. Um, but if you are sitting, you know, behind your computer typing on an, on an anonymous forum, it, it might make you look better if you're super hypercritical about somebody else's research. And maybe... And probably that person should have done better research, you know, and, and I understand that because um, when opportunities arise for me to analyze a piece of footage or a photograph or footprints, I always look back and realize the mistakes I make, you know, but um, I'm out there trying the best I can, and I think I do a pretty decent job. I mean, I, I can do better, but and I, I think that it's easy when you're not doing it. You know, um, and it's so easy to criticize others, and it's it's like bullying in school. Because remember, I was an elementary school teacher for like 13 years or 14 years. Um, bullies put down other people to make themselves look or feel better. And perhaps I don't know. And again, I, mean, I want to say it again. I don't know why it's like that, but perhaps that has something to do with it. Perhaps it's just safest. And 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 you know, I was speaking to somebody actually today, a friend. Um, and he suggested that, you know what, there's not a lot of Bigfoot information out there is what it really comes down to, for this guy at least. Um, you know, we want to learn more about new track finds. We want to learn about, about like new footage and stuff. But there's so little out there that I think that the Bigfoot community is so hungry for new information that they've just kind of started feeding upon themselves in a way. Since there's no, not a lot of data, that's, that, it's not like a steady stream of data to look at. And, and so they, they've kind of sort of like started feeding upon themselves and the personalities more so than actual Bigfoot stuff. I, so I don't know. That's, those are some thoughts I have. And I'm not saying that that's why any of this is happening. But those are some thoughts I've been kind of kicking around about what you suggest, what you mentioned to me. So maybe that has something to do with it. Well, I you know the way I kind of look at it is like uh, like you do um, the you know how sharks you ever seen those guys down on the islands in the Bahamas they'll get some of those reef sharks going and you know they'll throw stuff in and um, pretty soon you'll have a little feeding frenzy and then one shark who was part of the feeding feeding frenzy um, gets clipped and next thing you know his intestines are hanging out and he becomes part of the well, what they're feeding on. And, I mean, all of a sudden, uh, there was like 60 sharks there, and then they're down to like 40 because 20 of them got, got to be a lot more part of the event than they than they wanted to be. You know? yeah, yeah, And I, sure. I kind of see that going on. And, of course, you know what? And it's not it's not just indicative of the Bigfoot community. I mean, you see that in academia all the time. Um, scientists doing research in cancer, for example, I mean, they're very careful to not criticize other people's work, but they – they, you know, they they have those reserved sort of comments like, well, I, that may be a stretch, or you know, I just don't see where he's headed with this. They, they can't come right out and say he's a blithering idiot and he's just wasting all your research funds, which you should give to me because I'm a genius, which mm -hmm. is what they'd all like to say to you behind your back. But 
You know what was interesting for me is when um, I'm a fairly sensitive guy, you know, and I'm honestly fairly uncomfortable um, with whatever level of fame I have now. And luckily, I'm not I'm not very recognizable, and I and I I might get somebody walking up to me politely, like maybe once a week, and saying, "Are you on a TV show?" or something like that. So I'm not like Bobo, who stands out everywhere he goes. but what really helped me with this whole thing, with all the attention and the criticism that gets thrown at the show and, and me and whatever else, is uh, one of our producers and cameramen um, worked on Billy the Exterminator, um, that, another show, another cable show, right, and about this sort of Motley Crue-looking um, you know, exterminator guy going in and doing extermination jobs in ways that are kind of unorthodox. Um, when, but Billy's a really nice guy and really mellow, apparently, too. And uh, apparently the first season of Billy the Exterminator, when that started airing, Billy was overwhelmed with the criticism he was getting from the exterminator community. I, I didn't, it didn't even occur to me there was an exterminator community. You know, like, <laughs> there's probably, like, forums out Who there. Who knew? You know? <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I'm sure Billy's probably out there thinking, thinking the same thing if he's listening to this, going, there's a Bigfoot community, really? Um, but that kind of put things in perspective, and I just realized, well, you know what? I guess that's just the way people are, um, that they're looking for something to tear apart for whatever reason they have. Or, yeah. you know, I mean, I'm sure some people do that sort of thing for good reasons or, you know, kind reasons um, in a kind way, but a lot of them kind of don't. They're kind of mean about stuff. Um, and, you know, my <laughs> I'm going to say it again. I'm an elementary school teacher. It's not right to be mean. Right. Well, I think <laughs> you, know. you see that in a lot of you see that in a lot of venues. Um, you know, like I'm I, I'm a custom call maker. I make custom made duck calls and goose calls. And you know, there's always guys out there. No matter what you do, they're always talking trash about your stuff or about your customer service. Or if you're if a decoy guy, you know, somebody doesn't like your decoys because you know they 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 didn't perform up to their expectations. And I mean, there's there's a lot of people out there that like to criticize. You know. Um, they don't mind criticizing everybody's stuff, but you know you can't touch theirs because that's the sacred cow, you know. Um, so you see a lot of that out there, and I don't know if it's envy so much as it is just people get bored. You know, the seasons mm-hmm. seasons closed, and and um, you know that kind yeah, of yeah. People always like to stir things up too. There are just some people out there that are rabble rousers, and that's cool. Absolutely. You know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with being punk rock in your heart, you know. Um, right. But just you know, try to. I would encourage everybody to just you know, if you have criticism, do it in a professional way. Um, don't 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 be mean because it comes across as childish, you know. And, right. it's not a, and we're adults, you know. We can disagree and still have respect for one another. Okay. Well, um, I got a question for you. I've got um, I got one that's still holding. There's been several people calling in tonight, and I, oh. the conversation was just kind of clipping right along. Are you are, are you willing to take some calls from the from the public or? Yeah, yeah, sure. Public? I'm open for right. anything. Yeah. All right, area code nine two five. You're on the air with Cliff Barrickman of Finding Bigfoot. Who do we got here? Hey, Cliff. Uh, Kelly, this is Tony G out in California. Hey, what's up, man? Your number. Nothing. How you I doing? I remember you. You have the single largest collection of my earliest calls. I hope you still have them in a safe place because they're worth a lot of money. Oh, yeah. I got them on my mantle. I got, I don't know what, 14, 15 of them. But, uh, yeah, anyway, Cliff, how are you doing? I'm doing, I'm I'm, I'm great. Um, it's just been ridiculous lately. <laughs> yeah. Love the show. Um, hate Renee, but love the show. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I know how you guys put up with. <laughs> well, 
I guess you need somebody, uh, a non-believer on there to, to, to balance things out. But uh, anyways, just wanted to call in. Haven't talked to Kelly in a while, and I figured I'd call tonight and uh, say I love your show. We watch it every tra- every chance we get, and we're all believers. So. Well, cool, cool. And uh, um, I, I do appreciate that. And I also hope that if you're interested in the Bigfoot thing, and, and particularly the show at the same time, um, after every episode, although I'm, I'm lagging right now, to be honest, I haven't done it for the last episode, but after pretty much every episode, I write a little, uh, like a short essay, you know, like maybe a couple pages about what it was like to film that particular episode. And, you know, some of the things that the editors do to us, I guess, I kind of uh, show those like, well, that's not exactly what happened. This is what really happened. Or we didn't have time to put in this other cool stuff that happened. So if you haven't seen any of those, you might really enjoy those. You can go check those out on my blog, uh, which is NorthAmericanBigfoot.com. Cool. Yeah, that, you yeah, might well, think, you know, and it's funny. So it's cool. I, I'm, a, I'm a pretty decent writer. You might enjoy it. All right, I'll check that out. Okay. So, All right, well, I'll let cool. somebody else get in there. And, uh, Kelly, I'll talk to you soon. Hey, Tony, I just got one question for you. The last time you talked to me, I was walking into a restaurant to eat. Um, uh-huh. And things in your world were kind of going crazy. Is everything okay now? Um, yeah, it's all pretty much flat now. Two oldest kids are out of the house already, and uh, I've been seeing one for almost four years now, so it's it's good doing deal. good. And good me deal, and the ex are actually are getting along. You know, we have to for the little one, but we are. It's it's doing good. All right, man. Well, I'm glad you I'm glad you called in. I really am. I'm glad to hear from yeah, you. Yeah, well, I've been wanting to. I've been wanting to call, and I figured this was a good night since we watch the there show, you, you know, pretty much every week. So, Okay. Um, um, you guys have a good night, and we'll, uh, I'll talk to you soon, Kelly. Thanks, Tony. You have a good evening. Um, and thank you, Tony, for watching. I appreciate that, sir. That uh, that guy, he's he's a good guy. I When I first started making duck calls and goose calls, you know, you don't really think of what you got's worth of crap, and then you start selling a few of them on eBay. Um, Tony became one of my biggest first customers. Um, on my calls, and a uh, super nice guy. Um, Maybe you should make a Bigfoot call. Well, I don't know how one would do that. Um, <laughs> I, I really I don't. don't. You're, Somebody you're asked expert. me earlier um, how to do that. So um, let's just, why? you know, one of the things that people keep asking is why are there no bones? How come we don't have any bones? How come we don't have any skeletons? Um, I remember a story about the Kentucky Giants. Does that ring a bell with you? Well, there's a lot of giant sort of stories out there, and I've seen a lot of the photographs of the skeletons, and I'm inclined to think that they're mostly hoaxed, but I don't know that's true of all of them. Okay. But, you know, when people ask me all the time if Sasquatches are real, where are their bones? And I always answer, if cougars are real, where are their bones? You don't really find apex predator bones. And here, by the way, I know there's a bunch of people in the audience right now going, wait a minute, wait a minute, I found this or that. You don't find apex predator bones that die a natural death. Um, most of the apex predator bones, and again, apex predators are the ones at the top of the food chain, bears, mountain lions, sasquatches. Um, people don't really know what they do when they go to die, but the prevailing thought is that they're kind of like farm dogs or farm cats. They just kind of disappear one day. Now, um, animals get sick. You know, we get sick. Bears get sick. Illness happens. Um, and when an animal is sick... It is vulnerable. So most likely, the animal hides itself near water because animals need water when they're sick, but they don't eat. Most animals, except, except humans, fast when they're ill to get better sooner because fasting is actually pretty good for you, apparently. Um, so these animals are probably hiding themselves in the thickets near water 
or some trickle of, you know, some stream or just spring coming out of the side of the hill somewhere. And then one day they don't get better. They die instead. So they literally hid their bodies. Now, within a few hours to a few days maximum, the scavengers start moving in, you know, whether it's coyotes or whether it's weasels or something like that. And they start ripping apart the body and dispersing the pieces. Well, moths move in and eat the hair. And um, the bones are going to be eaten very, very shortly by things like deer mice, which are the most common animal in North American forests. Deer mice, um, as well as wood rats and rabbits and porcupines, um, they eat bones. So really, one wouldn't expect to find um, uh, any like dead apex predator bones. And it does happen very, very rarely. I know an owl caller, for example, in Northern California, who stumbled across a bear um, that he believes died a natural death. It was wedged underneath this giant redwood tree, and he only saw the paw be- coming out from underneath the tree. So this thing kind of backs up my theory in a way that they hide themselves. This one apparently didn't hide itself very well, though, because this, the, the, my friend the owl caller saw this thing poking out from underneath the tree. Um, so Bigfoots are probably much like this, but they're also much more rare than bears are. All my time I've been asking, how many naturally dead bears have you found? Um, Renee claims to have found some, but she's never told me where or when or any, any details about them at all. She says, oh, I find them. Well, I don't know if she does or not. I think she might be finding poached bears. Um, and, but my one friend who, thinks, who did actually find a naturally dead bear, in my opinion, that's the only person I've ever heard of that said anything like that. And if you assume that there's 100 times more bears than Sasquatches, well, that, that kind of says that we're probably never going to find a naturally dead Sasquatch. Right. Well, I've got another caller here tonight, Cliff. Um, I happen to know this young man. This is my son, Hunter. Um, oh, cool. He has been waiting for this show <laughs> ever since you and I first talked. Um, I know this is his cell phone number. He's dying to talk to you. So, Hunter, ask Cliff your question, would you please? Um, hi, Cliff. My name's Hunter. I'm Kelly's son. And Very good. Nice just, meeting you, Hunter. Nice meeting you, too. Um, I'm a really big fan of your show, and... I just wanted to know what all of you seen. Wait, wait, what, what did you want to know? You want to know what all of like what, like what on like this seat, like this season, like the last season that you guys did. What have you guys uh-huh. seen? What have we seen? Well, um, this past season, none of us saw a Bigfoot. I'll tell you that. Um, we saw a lot of great locations. Um, on this last scene. But I'll tell you what, Hunter, first season, when we went to North Carolina, I think I might have seen a Bigfoot on that trip. Um, and that's pretty interesting. Remember when like Matt's yelling, who's on the hill, all that stuff? Um, Matt swears that's got to be a person up there on the hill. But um, putting that in context, it was 2.30 in the morning, a mile and a half or two miles off trail, um, and whatever bipedal figure was walking on that hillside that night was doing so without a light or any sort of visual aid, even though it was pitch dark. Um, and, of course, Matt chased after it for whatever reason he has. Um, and he was chasing after it with a thermal imager and night vision goggles, and he never saw the thing again. Later on that same night, something that did not make the show um, about 45 minutes later, from that same hillside, we got a vocalization. Uh, <laughs> vocalization that was quite close to us. So even though I don't know for sure, I'm inclined to think 
that that night I might have seen a Bigfoot through my thermal imager. Well, what about the one where Bobo was standing up on those people's back porch or the deck? You know, that lady had the greasy handprint on her on her back door? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. He, he did the spit and dive off the back there. You could clearly see something that looked human in shape coming up the hill. That's worse because it was a human. That was one of us. Um, at that particular ah. time, they were rushing to get these shows together. And actually, that's one of the things that I said in one of my um, my commentaries that I write about the, about the episodes after they're they're shown. I'm not allowed to say anything about the episodes until they are shown. But afterwards, I'm allowed to say to say pretty much what I want. However, after that episode, particularly at the very end where they see the thing in the thermal imager that runs away, it was a horse. Um, I got a couple pretty testy phone calls um, after that one. They say, did you have to say it was a horse? And I just said, well, did you have to edit it like that? You know, and we got in, got in a little headbutting contest. But um, the the long and short of it is that the truth comes out because I'm not interested in the hoaxing and I'm not interested in misleading people. Um, right. I'm interested in the truth. And that thing that Bobo saw was a person. That's why it looked like a person because it was a person. Um, okay. We were hearing noises in the woods that night. I think that the noises at that particular point were armadillos rummaging through the leaf litter. However, that same day, I heard I heard two distinct knocks at different times and a vocalization from an adjacent hillside. There were Bigfoots, in my opinion, nearby that night, but that particular second that Bobo was on the screen talking about it, that was not a Bigfoot. I know I've, my personal experience is I know I've been up in a tree stand hunting deer, for example, and um, I, I'll tell you, a possum that weighs no more than six pounds, shuffling through those leaves, you just know. You don't want to turn around and look because it's going to be the biggest buck on the planet and you're already imagining your face splattered all over the front of outdoor life and field and stream for this, you know, world record, <laughs> you know, deer you yeah, shoot. Sure. And the sure. minute you turn around, he does that ninja trick and turns into a, a possum. It's just, it's uncanny how they do that. Well, one of the things I tell new Bigfooters all the time is that when you go in the woods, keep in mind that little things sound big and big things sound little. Oh, yeah. I hear you. Well, you know, the thing about it is um, I, I like to predator hunt. I haven't done as much as I used to. But one of the things that will absolutely unnerve you is to be sitting out there calling coyotes, all right, with a predator call. And <clears throat> you don't see a coyote busting in. That will get your undivided attention because they're moving pretty quick. All of a sudden you get this little tiny flicker of movement off to your left, and you just turn your head ever so slightly to the left, and you realize there's a full-grown bobcat sitting about 15 feet away from you, and the first thing is, where the flock did that camp thing come from? You know, right, right. That, that that will unnerve you because all he's doing is looking at you, and trying to figure out how he's going to kill this 200-pound mouse. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And they, and you know, they could probably do it, man. They'd mess us up pretty bad. Wow. It it can unnerve you. I mean, and I know what you mean when stuff that lives out there, they know how to get from point A to point B with making a lot of noise. Because if they made a lot of noise, they would become, well, they would become extinct. Okay, That's, That's the way evolution works, you know. Right, so. Evolution works like that. The survivors get to, you know, make babies. Okay. Um, Hunter, do you have any other questions for Cliff before I pop you off the air? Yeah, one other question. Um, what about New Jersey this year? What were those three coming down the hillside? New Jersey. Um, we didn't do a show in New Jersey. Which can you tell me more what happened in the episode so I can figure out what state you're talking about? Um, 
I I thought it was New Jersey, but it was when Renee was up in the tree stand. And oh, that was Rhode Island. That was Rhode Island. So oh, you're the right oh. general area of the country, but it was Rhode Island. <laughs> Uh, okay, and 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 the what? What the three? Uh, the three? Yeah, there were like it was two vis- like two things that you could see for sure. And then when my dad and I were looking at it on the TV. It looked I saw like the third one maybe. Was it was it when she was actually in the tree, Hunter? Uh huh. I think okay. that you know that, the guys that was coming us. back. That was us coming back because um, Matt and I heard big. Kasplushes that we eventually figured out were beavers. But while um, Matt and I were investigating those noises, Bobo had rock, a rock-throwing event nearby him. He swears that a rock came in, and he heard it, and it, it rolled around on the ground. He swears that a rock came in. And I, I've learned to trust Bobo's judgment over the years. And occasionally everybody's wrong, obviously. But I, if Bobo says it, I'm going to go with it for that, that moment because there's been a couple times Bobo's heard things that I did not. And he turned out to be right later. So I, I kind of trust Bobo with my life in a lot of ways. Um, so since we had something there and it wasn't showing itself, what we decided to do was walk by where Renee was in hopes that the thing might be so intently focused on us, it could ignore Renee and expose itself to Renee. Well, you know what I mean by that. And then uh, so like going by following us, maybe Renee could actually catch it on Thermal Imager. So I think what you're seeing is us walking on a trail in hopes that something might be following us maybe 50 or 100 yards behind us. Okay. All right. Well, good night, son. Get ready for bed. Night. There's school tomorrow, boy. Yeah, he does. Hey, Hunter, thank you for calling. Uh, I I nuked him off there. Um, Yeah, he's going to use his show as as date bait. I guarantee you he's going to tell the girls in school, hey, man, I was on the radio last night. (laughs) <laughs> well, I use the show for the same thing. So, yeah, well, good, good. I'm proud of you. I'm I really am. I mean, you're exploring your options. Um, so, what you know uh, of this year's shows, um, the draw in the can. It, did you have what was your favorite from last year, and what's your favorite so far this year? And is there is there, there's something? There's a vicious rumor coming going around that the the show about New Mexico is freaking wicked nice, or is that something I just Beautiful, heard wrong, man? I, I just saw the New Mexico episode. It's beautiful. Um, just because the terrain there is so spectacular and the film we investigate um, is is very, very compelling. Um, yeah, I think New Mexico is going to be an excellent episode that people would want to see for sure. Um, I, I would have to say New Mexico was so much fun. Like the, What I got to do in New Mexico, like our search technique, was just so amazing and so fun. I got to say that was probably one of my favorite episodes. Um, but... Each one of these is, is is so different in so many ways. Um, whether the terrain's a little different, you know, because New Mexico looks dramatically different than Kentucky, for example. But yet, mm-hmm. Kentucky, I got to hang out and have that amazing barbecue and try real moonshine. Um, oh, I'm a yeah. home brewer, so I'm interested in moonshine, obviously. In Virginia, when we were there, that's another great. The, the, the witnesses in Virginia were so spectacular. And something that happened in Virginia that I thought was really cool was um, one night, Bobo and I, and, and the sound girl named Erica, um, we, ha- we got done early, like around 5 o'clock, which is pretty rare for us. Because to give you an idea of our work week, um, we work six days a week on average 10 to 14 hours a day. That's, and then we get one day off, and that day is usually spent doing laundry or something like that. Right. Um, that's, and that's my life for four months at a time. Um, but this particular whoa, 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 whoa. You have to do your own laundry? Yes, I do. What kind of a freaking <laughs> budget you guys got on this thing, man? You need roadies. 
Well, he was a reality TV star, right? Um, okay. yeah, well, I, I guess I could pay some exorbitant fee to have somebody else do it for me, but I, I'm a simple guy. And I'm, not, I'm not some celebrity. I'm just some Bigfoot nerd that's looking enough to do it on TV. Um, you say that now, but, but once season three is in the can, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see. All right. Anyway, this particular day, we were done around 5 o'clock, and we were in Bristol, Virginia. And um, Bobo said, hey, let's go to the Carter Family Fold. I went, yeah, because the Carter Family Fold is the place where June Carter, you know, Johnny Cash's wife, um, got yeah. her start. And, and like Maybell Carter, like the, she pioneered a style of guitar playing. I, I'm a guitarist. Um, I actually have a degree in jazz guitar. That was my um, bachelor's degree in college. So I said, yeah, let's go to the Carter Family Fold. And we went out there. We met fantastic people, some of which are still emailing me. Um, and just to say hi, we got to meet June Carter's granddaughter and talk to her and hang out. And, and uh, it's just, it's the last stage that Johnny Cash ever performed on. And, and Bobo and I and, and Erica, we just danced our butts off all night long, and it was so much fun. So each episode is, is, is special to me in, their, in its own way. Sometimes the thing that makes it special, though, doesn't make the air. So Right. Well, you know what? I'm going to tell you, I've, I've traveled a lot in this country, and the one thing about the people of this country that never ceases to amaze me is their warmth, their, their hospitality, and their generosity at times. I would agree, yeah. That's just – and you don't find that anyplace else on the planet. You really don't. I mean uh, – you really don't. So, hey, we've got another caller. Um, this is no one related to me, as far as I know. <laughs> okay, area code seven zero four. Who do we have? Hey, my name is Lydia. I'm calling from Western North Carolina, and my eighteen-year-old son would like to ask Cliff a question, if that is okay. Absolutely, all right with me. All right, here he is. His name is Seth. Yes, Cliff. Hello? It is such an honor to talk to you, Cliff Brockman. I mean, Mr. Brockman. I was one. My name is Seth Chapel. I was wondering what would make Dream Ops besides Sasquatch at night. That's a really good question, and that's also a question that I'm still looking into. Certainly, and by the way, Seth, thank you very much for watching the show, and also thank you very much for calling. I do appreciate that. Um, and I, and you know, you said you're 10 years old, Seth. Is that right? Yes, sir. Yeah, 10 years old is my is. Uh, I taught your age for years and years and years. You're probably in fourth, fifth, or sixth grade. I'm guessing fifth grade. Um, I, yes, sir. I, 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 I get along better with 10 year olds than I do adults sometimes. So thank you very much. <laughs> I really appreciate you watching. Um, but other things that can make popping noises like that out in the woods besides Bigfoot. Um, well, deer pull their um, their racks and their, their antlers against trees sometimes, you know, for whatever reasons they have. And another thing that can make popping noises besides gunshots, I guess that could be happening too, like raccoon hunters, for example. But also sometimes, particularly in the winter, when it's very, very cold, um, the trees can freeze and expand inside. And then what happens is that the bark of the trees becomes separated from the wood underneath. And in the expansion and contraction, you know, like getting bigger and getting smaller, um, they can pop and make this really weird sort of big popping noise that almost sounds like a wood knock or a gunshot. Um, so those are a couple things that could make those noises. But you know what, Seth? I bet you anything, I don't know every single thing that can make noises in the woods, and that's why I continue 
to consider myself a learner. I don't think I'm a Bigfoot expert. I consider myself a Bigfoot learner, even still. Yes, sir. And the reason I was asking that question, because one night, Mom and me were just going, went outside, and we were just kind of joking around, knocking on tree branches. And a few minutes later, we heard really loud tree knocks. So we responded, and we got several really good, obvious knocks. Really? Well, do you live in a place that um, you see a lot of wildlife, like deer and stuff like that? Yes, sir. Well, you know, then maybe you have a Bigfoot nearby um, because Bigfoots do live very, very close to where people live. Um, a lot of times people think that you have to go way out in the middle of nowhere to see a Bigfoot, and that's just not true. Bigfoots, especially at night, can come very, very close to where people live because people usually aren't out at night. Yeah, it only sounded like it was like a few yards in front of us. Oh, a few yards, really. That's not very far. Maybe, who knows then? Um, but as far as I know, well, see, sometimes bears make a sort of popping noise with their teeth. That's something else that just occurred to me. Um, but really, if you're knocking to it and it's knocking back, that might be a person messing with you. But if you're sure that there's no people there, then maybe it's a Bigfoot. Thank you. You're Do you welcome, have an older Seth. brother or an older sister, Seth? What? Do you have an older brother or an older sister? Yes, sir. You might want to go talk to them. <laughs> they might have been yeah, playing a joke on you, but you never know. Yeah, they you don't know. They don't live yeah, here. We, They're all married. Oh. Oh, oh yeah. You should always okay. try to figure out what it could, what it, what, what it definitely is not. You try to eliminate the possibilities, and then you see what you have left, left over, and then you see what's most likely. You might you might want to you and your mom might just want to keep notes of when you if if this happens again you know write mm-hmm. down when it happened the date the time of night that it happened and uh, maybe if you can establish a pattern there might be something to it you never know yeah but, you might yeah. have one living nearby Seth a lot of pe- lot more people have Bigfoots near them than they realize Bigfoots are very rare but they are out there and sometimes they come close to houses and stuff. But usually the people inside the houses never even know it. Yeah, we went out there like another night and knocked a few times. And we got like some very faint, far away knocks. Yeah, you know what? I think um, that Kelly has a good idea that when that happens, you should write down like maybe in a journal, get a special journal for your like a Bigfoot journal, and then write down the day and the time. And then write a story, like write a paragraph, a couple sentences about what happened. And you can even notice things like, what was the weather like? What was the moon like? Was it full or half? And you can write those things down. And if if you do that long enough, you might actually learn some sort of pattern that the Bigfoots are using. And then you can go out and try to communicate with the Bigfoots when that pattern is there, like when the moon is right or something like that, you know? Yes, sir. Thank okay. you. Cool. Oh, well, you're thank welcome. You. Thank you. I'm excited about another Bigfooter joining the ranks. Good job, Seth. Well, thanks. Thank you. Thanks for joining us tonight, Seth. I really appreciate you calling in, little dude. Okay? Yes, right. sir. Thanks. All right. Good night. Bye. Well, I haven't heard the word sir so many times in, in a paragraph in my life. <laughs> he's a, he's a he was very well mannered. Apparently well-mannered. raised very, very nicely by uh, Lydia, I believe her name was. Yes. Very good. Well, um, 
what what exactly are we are we going to be looking at this year for Cliff? I mean, I know you got the show going on and stuff. Um, what else is on the horizon for you? I mean, a lot of things are on the horizon actually. Um, uh, let's see. Well, I, I, I leave Sunday. Like I'm in Florida now. I, I'm doing a, a newspaper interview for the next couple of days here in Florida. I go back on Saturday to my home, and then Sunday I leave. I, I'm gone until June 22nd. I get to go home for about a week sometime in April, but that's pretty much it. Um, and I'm filming season three during that time. Um, after I get back, uh, I, I suspect that a lot of my summer will be eaten up by two things. Um, number one, over the last year or so, I've been collecting video footage of various Bigfooty sort of things. Um, I've uncovered a couple casts, for example, that no one has ever seen before. Um, I have a lot of witness videos, of, not of Bigfoots, but of like casting these casts or interviews of witnesses on tape. Um, and some of these casts are actually historic in nature. And if you're a hardcore Bigfoot nerd, you would know about like uh, you know the 1982 Grace Harbor cast. Well, I uncovered a, a new cast from that casting event that no one's ever seen before. Um, there, I, another cast from Gates, Oregon, came to me, and uh, that witness took photographs and um, video of the casting event, and he also videoed a disemboweled beaver that he found nearby. So, and then um, I also have access to a photograph of a Sasquatch that has never been made public. And so what I'm doing is I'm weaving all of these short vignettes into a DVD for sale that will probably be out by the end of summer, by, by August. Okay. Um, so that's one thing I have on my horizon. But a, a, a spectacular thing happened just this past week that is going to be eating up a tremendous amount of my time. Um, down by this little town called London, Oregon, um, the most significant footprint find of the last 30 or 40 years happened. And I happened to be the third or fourth person on the scene. Um, two, two Bigfoots were in this particular area one of them was uh, left 17-inch prints in the mud, and there were four footprints that were all cast by my friend Toby, Toby Johnson and um, his friend Todd. Um, Toby runs the Oregon Sasquatch Symposium, so uh, I think he'll be talking about that later in October when that happens. However, the next day when they went back, they uncovered a trail of 122 footprints of a smaller individual, a 14-inch foot, left these particular tracks. Um, uh, Todd cast four of those. I showed up when the, when they were drying because I got word. Toby called me because I'm kind of a cast nerd and he wanted me to see him. I came down, and my friend Chris Minier and I, um, we cast uh, uh, 72 footprints from that site. Um, I called some more friends, cause I, and I got back at 5.20 a.m. That, that next morning. I was busy all night long. Um, and plus, it's a two-hour drive or more. Then my friends uh, Tom Powell and Guy Edwards from a Bigfoot Lunch Club, another great blog out there on Bigfoots, they came down and they cast 25 or 30 more of these things. Um, Dr. Jeff Meldrum has been notified. I've been in contact with him the last couple of days. Um, and uh, basically, I'm leaving, and the casts are still coated with mud. So every spare moment I get, like on my short little break in April, and then immediately following my return in June, I will be spending my time documenting and photographing and cleaning casts. Um, all of these casts will be uh, shared with Dr. Meldrum to add to the data set and to give you know some sort of perspective on the importance of this. Um, the, 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 the most casts ever taken that were consecutive, you know, like this less than that right, then less than right, then less than right in a row. 
What? Oh, my gosh, you dropped again, Cliff. This is killing me. This happens when you're saying something really cool, too. Um, I read about uh, this. Okay, he dropped. We're going to get him back on here in a second, I'm sure. Um, here we go. So, anyway, Chris Let's and I pick it up we'll see four of these things. <laughs> and, and it's not a matter of holding the record. That's not what's important to me. But we have such amazing data. We're going to learn a lot about how SAS how their foot interacts with the ground as they walk around from this event, more so than any other foot can find ever. Um, and all that data is in its raw form right now. So I'll be spending most of my summer uh, between the DVD and work. And by the way, this will be part of the DVD release as well. But besides the DVD, I'll be spending most of my summer digesting data and cleaning things and sharing information because uh, an important piece, an important step in the scientific method is peer review. And that's, that means you've got to share your finds. You have to share your information so other people can look at it to similar or different conclusions. To verify were these tracks were at? How hard was it for you guys to get to where these tracks were at? Um, it was a long drive, but luckily they weren't that far from the road. And they were they were kept. The substrate was um, on on a uh, on a, in a reservoir that had a, a low water level, um, so there was a large exposed beach area that was sandy underneath, but it had about a half inch or an inch layer of silty organic goo that left okay. beautiful impressions, including skin impressions. Okay, so this is not the time of the year that you're going to find most people out there in that part of the world running around big barefoot near a reservoir, correct? It, it clearly was not a human being by not okay. only the 42-inch steps from left to right, um, that sometimes went up to 53 inches, I might add, but also the flexibility of the toes really, really stood out to me. Humans, um, their, their fifth digit, their tiny, their little toe, if you want to call it that, um, uh -huh. is invariably curled under because our, our lives are spent in shoes. These toes showed such a level of flexibility and differentiation from print to print. There is no way, in my opinion, this could be a human being. They uh, actually, from the prints that I've seen, they don't actually look like they're a heel-to-toe type of a walk. It's more of a flat. That's slider. true, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Sasquatches yeah. don't have an arch. Okay, so... But they do have they do have the ability for their foot to flex. They'd have to because of their weight. But um, they don't have an arch like we do, right? No, no. Okay. They evolved entirely differently. Our arch, which is held static, um, held still by um, tendons and ligaments, we mm -hmm. evolved into what we are because we are persistence hunters. It's, it's easy to forget as we sit to run. Um, persistence hunting is basically... I think when you're moving around there in your hotel room, uh, you may be losing your signal because you're, you're, you've dropped again, I believe. Um, persistent hunters, I think is what he was talking about. Uh, we're constantly on the move, exploring, looking at, chasing, trying to spear or otherwise kill our, our uh, intended quarry. Um, I think that's where he was headed with that. But... Uh, I have to apologize. We're having Cliff down in Florida. Um, he's a West Coast guy. He's on the he's on the East Coast. He's out of his own time zone. Um, he's having some phone issues, and I'm hoping he'll call back in here in the next second or two. He just may just say, you know, it's been a long day. I'm tired of it. But here he is. So he's much. Persistent. 
All right. Man. I am. I, I apologize so much. This has never happened to me before. I apologize. That's, I don't that's know. If totally cool. Feel. That's totally cool. It's going to be the subject of my next week's show, which is why aliens interrupt our phone lines and what's their purpose. <laughs> <But> <laughs> right. Right. Anyway. Well, anyway. Persistent runners. Go ahead. Yeah, long story short, the flexibility of the Sasquatch's foot was plainly evident. Um, there's traces. You know, and your, your audience is full of trackers. They all know that when you follow an animal track story, the story right. that I was told that this creature's tracks is that there, in my opinion, is no way this was a human being. This was a Sasquatch, and there were two of them there that night, remember, a 17-inch print and a 14-inch print. Okay. So this is, this is the part that amazes me is people, oh, that's a hoax. You know, who in their right frickin' mind is going to go out in the middle of the night, go up to a lake in the middle of February, and go and make prints that somebody may or may not see ever, you know, and the reservoir mm-hmm. fills up, the, the prints get filled in, or whatever. You know, I mean, there's there's so many of these things that just don't make sense. I mean, when the, when the skeptics go, oh, yeah, it's a fake footprint, yeah, if it's in the middle of town on a dirt road, I could see that. Yeah. When it's miles from any place, I mean, good God Almighty, uh, it just makes any makes you know any normal person think you know there might be something to that. Um, well, yeah, you got you have to experience it. You know, it's it's not easy to convince other people Bigfoot's are real, but when you have an experience, even if you don't see it, it's really easy to convince yourself. So I would mm-hmm. encourage people like yeah, go out and do it for yourself, but don't worry about other people. A lot of right. Bigfooters in general, they want to like basically prove it to everybody and rub their nose in it, or you know, even Krantz, Dr. Krantz said that. Um, I don't approach Bigfooting like that at all. I approach Bigfooting kind of like going for a walk. You know, I leave my house, I wander around for a while, and I come back to my house. I don't right. go for walks for the destination. I go for walks because I enjoy going for walks, and that's the same reason I go Bigfooting. I'm not trying to prove this to anybody because Bigfoots are real. They don't need to be proven. When you're right. You don't need to prove it. You're just right. And uh, right. and Bigfoots are, I'm just enjoying the ride. And I love the whole phenomenon. I, I, I love the creatures. Uh, they are so interesting to me. And I'm just enjoying the ride with no particular destination in mind. Well, I mean, God, how do I, how do I ask this? Has, has the show, I know the show has opened other doors to you. Do you see it, do you see it, you going... In a, in a different direction, or do you ever see yourself going back into teaching? I don't know. I mean, we'll see what the show does. I mean, the, uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I do miss teaching. I, I, I do miss, you know, working in the classroom and interacting with the students and, and faculty and parents and stuff. But you know what? I don't miss correcting papers, and I do not miss waking <laughs> up in, at 5.30 every morning and then working uh-huh. until 6 o'clock at night. You know, I don't miss yeah. the 10- to 12-hour days every day for very, very little money. Um, and I don't make that much more money now than I even did then, you know. So it's not, I'm not a money kind of guy, and I'm certainly not rich. But um, I do miss teaching. But at the same time, I'm kind of wondering, well, maybe there's other opportunities where I can get that same satisfaction. Of perhaps oh doing it a different way. So I, uh-huh. I don't really know. I don't really know at this honestly. Well, you know, I just I, I want to wish you guys the best of luck in in this next season. Um, I know that I won't miss any of the episodes. I, you know, I I always I tell a lot of the guys in the outdoor industry that I and I firmly believe this in my heart that a lot of the best stuff that goes on these shows ends up on the cutting room floor. 
um, whether it's they just can't figure out how to make that that scene look right or whatever, or the bloopers. And I, you know, I can just I can honestly imagine that there must be just a scad load of bloopers, you know, from you guys wandering around in the dark with those infrared. <laughs> Well, yeah, you know, you're, you're going to get to see some of those on this Sunday's episode, too, because if you if you saw season one with Bigfoot and beer, where we just kind of sat in front of the audience and drank beer and talked about the show, um, we do that same thing, but without the beer this time, unfortunately. We do that uh-huh. same thing for this Sunday's episode, and you're going to see some never-before-seen um, pieces of footage from our show, and, you know, Bobo, of course, at, like it falls down some more, and it's it's really hilarious stuff. Um, and I think that uh, if you're into that side of things, you're going to really love this coming Sunday show. Well, I just I'm not really into that sort of thing, but I know that there's been a lot of um, guys that have kind of listened to me in the past, and they put out blooper reels from you know four or five seasons worth of uh, shows, and, and um, they've surprisingly done very well. They didn't think that was worth anything, but you know um, it was pretty good. I mean, people. I mean, when you watch America's Funniest Home Videos, I mean, who doesn't laugh when the kid gets a baseball bat and Dad's trying to show him how to hit a ball? Everybody well, knows what's coming, but there uh-huh. it is. <laughs> right. Yeah, but, and uh, actually, in this show in particular, amazing things never make it to the show. Um, like on, on two different occasions, and once in Kentucky, once in Virginia, while we were out you know, banging trees and yelling in the woods with those backpack cameras on, Bigfoots came to base camp and threw rocks at the U-Haul truck where we dragged things around. Um, there's another occasion um, in Kentucky, a different, different location in Kentucky, where one of our production assistants saw a, an upright bipedal figure in the thermal imagers on the other side of a cow field walking on the, tr- on the forest line. He might have actually seen a Bigfoot while we're out looking for one somewhere else. Um, uh, amazing things happen on this show. And if, but unfortunately, as the producers say, if it doesn't happen on camera, it didn't really happen. Right. But luckily, it really did happen. Just that you guys don't get to see it, unfortunately. Well, you know, I'll tell you something. My wife's family is from that part of the world. She, her, her father's from Kentucky, and uh, over near the Columbia, the was it the Columbia Gap or Columbia Gap, Cumberland Gap? I'm sorry, Cumberland. Yeah, and, correct, uh, yeah. yeah. And I mean, um, you know, the kind of people you portray being back in the woods and stuff. I mean, um, it wasn't because they moved, huh? Appalachian Americans. Exactly. These people didn't move out there to to get away from that. That's just where they were born and raised. I mean, her grandparents, that's where they lived. And they had, you know, they they had tobacco farm, their house backed up to the, uh, or their farm backed up to the hills. I mean, the hills or mountains, whatever you want to call them. And the guy across the road, yeah, the guy across the road had a still, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. That was, it wasn't anything unusual. That was just life, rural 101 Kentucky. Yeah. yeah, that's the culture, and it's beautiful, and the people are so great out there. As you said earlier in the in the show here, I, everywhere we go, I'm just so blown away how awesome and kind everybody is, and how yeah. cool everybody is, you know. And they're like that, even without the cameras or the notoriety. I mean, they, they oh, truly yeah. are. They they truly are. I know that. Um, that that is absolutely the South is one of my favorite parts of the United States. They it just seems to be. I don't know, more of a laid back, we'll get around to it kind of a thing. You know, it's not mm-hmm. it's not the hustle and bustle that drives you nuts. You know, the East Coast, the West Coast, they got their own little thing. But there's just something about the South that's just truly, it, it's it's steeped in tradition. And, you know, they know that time is going to go on no matter what. So just enjoy the time you have. And that seems to be their their thing. So 
Yeah, yeah, I, I really kind of uh, embrace that aspect of the culture down there because I, my, I myself have a very elastic sense of time, and it uh-huh. seems that that a lot of people do down there, and, I, and I'm into it. I mean, it frustrates other people around me sometimes, you know, who are like uh, mentally attached to their watches and things like that. But I'm not that kind of guy, and uh, I've always appreciated that sort of uh, aspect to the culture down in the south as well. Yeah. Well, you know, I'll tell you what, that, that they were sitting up there barbecuing and, and having some adult beverages and stuff. That was just, you know, I, I don't know how the heck you guys left that hoot nanny. I'd have stayed there because it was way too much food for those two people to finish. <laughs> <laughs> well, remember, there's a crew there with us. You know, there's four people on camera plus the two people we visited at the camera, uh, at the right. cabin, rather. But remember, right. there's, uh, I think I counted one day, I think there's 16 people, including the, the we four cast members that travel wow. all over the place. Okay, so yeah, you that have 16 an people on site. Yeah, okay. yeah, and maybe not. They're not all there that particular day, but it takes 16 people being out in uh, on the road together for four months to make this show happen. Let alone a whole a whole another army of people, both at Animal Planet headquarters in New York and Maryland Discovery Networks, but also um, you know at Ping Pong Productions back in Los Angeles. Um, mm-hmm. it, it takes a lot of people to make this happen. Yeah. I think you guys have done a great job. I, I look forward to next season, and uh, it's been it's been interesting. It's been educational. It's been funny at times. And I got to ask you: Do you guys make sure that Renee and uh, Matt don't have any sharp objects when they start having conversations? Uh, well, you know, <laughs> I, I I have like zero control over any of them. It's like they have a mind of their own or something. Um, yeah. They, they, I I figure you know send them out and if we only get one back that's not so bad. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of armies that'd be happy with those kind of odds, you know. Oh, I'm I'm just I'm teasing though. I mean, because we all get along pretty well. I mean, anybody rubs on each other pretty hard after four months, you know. But um, by and large, I think that all of us bring something special to the team, um, and it wouldn't be the same show without any of us. You know what I mean? Right. Oh, yeah, like Renee does play a role, and Matt does play a role, and you know, and I play my own role, whatever that is. And Bobo certainly is him as loud as he can be. So, you know, he's he, he's kind of a paradox. He's like this big, gentle giant. You know, he's kind of like uh, Fernando the Bull or Ferdinand right. the Bull. You know, um, but then Hunter's like, no, he reminds me of that turtle in Finding Nemo. I said, which one? Is <laughs> you know, dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, you know the, the big one that he was hanging out with. He goes, that, "That's that seems like Bobo, only with more hair." Um, yeah, but yeah, I mean it's it's an interest, it's an eclectic mixture of people, um, and I have to tell you that the honestly the most what the flock did he just say moment had to be this last week when when Matt was explaining to Renee why uh, Sasquatches don't bother cows. Right, because, right. Because <laughs> they make an intelligent decision based on their knowledge of man that those cows belong to man. Um, <laughs> and the, right. the thing about it was, I, you know, I can understand why he would say that, okay? But the thing about it was, watching her face in the reflection of her infrared camera was priceless. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was. Yeah. Yeah, I have to say, like, I wasn't on that team, so I didn't even know that happened, you know? Cause oh, my. I, I, I get to see the episodes about a week or two before everybody else does, you know, just to make sure everything like is more or less represented appropriately, et cetera. And if it's not, then I can complain to the network and, or the production company. They can maybe do something about it. Um, wow. When I saw that, I just like shook my head and laughed. I, and I, I love these episodes as much as anybody because I was out there 
uh, I was on that adventure, and it's so interesting to see the way that all that is portrayed and spun together into the story, <laughs> you know? And, like, I, like, it's really interesting, and it really blew me away first season because sometimes things are filmed in a different order in which they're shown than which oh, they're absolutely. shown. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and, which is why we have to wear the same clothes all week long so they can edit it together in certain orders or whatever makes sense, you know? Like, right. oh, this this happened on Friday, but you know what? It would be really cool if, for the sake of the t- television story if that happened right after the town hall meeting, you know? And well, then they kind of like their last gig. I could tell mm-hmm. on your Alaska gig, you, there were several weeks between shootings on that. Because well, I'll tell you of, what, there uh, was a year between shootings on that one almost. A year? We, we shot the pilot, almost. We shot wow. a pilot in June. Um, we spent a week up there in Alaska and shot a pilot, which is where the rock clacking happened and all sorts of stuff. And then we went and, and, and uh, the network loved it and picked up the show. And then we went and shot five episodes um, for season one. And then we went back to Alaska because the pilot, all the footage that we got, wasn't in the format that the show turned out to have. So we had oh, to go great. back and reshoot a bunch of stuff. So I got two trips to Alaska. I'm pretty fortunate. Um, oh. and, but they edited both. We had to wear the same clothes that we wore on the first trip. So they could edit it all together. Uh-huh. It's, it's well, pretty interesting the way TV works. It's, it's, it, it makes sense, but it's, it's just so weird because... We're as consumers of television. We're all used to seeing the the final edited prod, product instead right. of the process. And in fact, you know, this is something funny the producers all say. They say that making television is is like making sausage. Everybody uh-huh. enjoys the final product, but nobody wants to know how it's made. Oh yeah, that's true. That's true. I had I have experience in that industry um, from a long time ago. Um, you look at a thirty second commercial. How long can that take to, to cut? <laughs> oh right, right. Oh well, my God! For our, That's I know possible. for our episodes, our episodes are about forty-three and a half minutes long. I'll just say right. forty-four minutes long. It takes over one hundred hours of footage to whittle yep. down to those forty-four minutes. Yep, absolutely. And like you said, ninety percent of—I mean, some of the absolute best stuff on the planet is laying in there on the on the floor because, eh, they just—they just didn't fit. Just didn't. Yeah, didn't, didn't fit so well. Even though it's cool and neat, it might stand alone pretty nicely, but it didn't fit the the, the <laughs> product, you know. I hear you. Well, I tell you, we're we're we've kind of gone a little bit over our, our original schedule here, but I'm uh, that's fine. I appreciate it. I know that where you're at, your your butt is dragging, um, but um, I, I will say this: uh, my hats off to Renee because she's the only person next to my daughter Megan. Um, they can actually make an audible eye roll, okay? And they roll so far back in their head to make a clicking sound. <laughs> nice. Well, you got you got to give you got to put your hat off to Renee for other reasons as well, because she puts up with us. Oh yeah. And uh, and I, I say this on the upcoming episode on Sunday, but because we all four of us, even Renee, all four of us are a bunch of big-headed people. We we are pretty stubborn and we're all pretty smart in our own ways and and we all have our own ideas and really bigfooters in general tend to be stubborn pig-headed people because we're out there chasing something that everybody else says it doesn't even exist you have to right. be a little stubborn for that and all of us and Renee it gets the worst of it because she's with us she's with three people who pretty much know bigfoots are real and she's trying her best to not think they're real you know in the face right. of these people who are like totally totally legit and, and sincere. And I, I saw this. Yeah, I lost my job over it or whatever. And she's got to say, no, you didn't. 
That's tough. I wouldn't want her yeah. job. No, it's it's not easy being a skeptic, but that's you know, unfortunately, um science and the research that, that is involved is, is part of that. I mean yeah. um if you take everything at face value, you're no longer a researcher, you're a follower, you know? Right. Um right. and I mean then then the the lines are no longer, you know, solid. They're they're fuzzy and gray and you know what's real and what's not. I mean, it's like if you want to hear something or you want to see something, you can make anything appear that that your imagination is willing to grasp onto. It's when we suddenly are confronted with something that is so beyond our ability to comprehend it, that's when the stuff shakes on in the inside and you're going, oh crap, what was that? You know, yeah, or you hear yeah, noise or you, you know. Um, I'm going to tell you something. What was really cool last week, and I didn't share this with you before, but last week on the show we were talking about stuff, and uh, my guest had to had to bail a little early, so we had an opportunity to talk about some other things. And one of the guys that called in, um, he was he was really hoping that you were going to be on last week's show because he he got the dates screwed up. And it's a gentleman that I know from California. Okay, um, he is one of the most well respected. Uh, gentleman in the state of California in the waterfowling industry, okay? Nobody in that state that hunts ducks doesn't know who this man is, all right? And he was talking about an experience that he had with his sons, you know, about 20 years ago, out on a sandbar while they were fishing for salmon or whatever it was they were fishing for in one of these rivers back up in northern California. Um, Minding their own business, they went out there, they camped out, they were the only ones there. Nighttime came around, they did the campfire thing in the store, they went to bed. Next morning, his son is hollering at him, get out of bed and take a look at this. And he goes out there, and there's a line of tracks from one end of the sandbar where it comes down around their tent, goes around their tent, goes back out the end of the sandbar and wanders on off. And he said those footprints, and he's a big old boy, he's like 6'3", 6'4", about 250 pounds. Um, He said those prints were half again as large as my foot. And he goes, my foot barely made a dent in this. It wasn't, it wasn't sand. It was that real fine gravel, okay, like mm-hmm. you get on the sandbar, okay, on the bars up there. He said, this thing's footprint was an inch to an inch and a quarter deep. And he says, my foot barely made a dent, okay? Well, yeah, you, you know, you're talking about something here that uh, I think is really important for people, especially if they're kind of teetering on the edge, like I'm not so sure Bigfoots are real, is that you're telling me about a person that you have a deep amount of respect for, and Absolutely. he's telling you something that he observed. Now, yep. clearly, you've already kind of come over to the Church of Bigfoot to some degree, and you think that oh, yeah. these are probably real. But a lot of people have not. But when they, when they finally speak to somebody that they know and trust, that has had an experience and observed some things, that's when things change. And I would encourage anybody who listens to this to go around and if you know and trust some people, say, you ever hear anything weird in the woods or ever see anything kind of weird in the woods that you didn't, couldn't explain, you might be very surprised that it won't take very long until you find somebody that has actually seen one of these things or found footprints or heard these weird screams and noises or knocks in the woods. Um, it, it, like in the Pacific Northwest, I'm, you know, I'm clearly way over the, way over the line on this one, right? So like whenever I'm out at a, you know, restaurant or a bar or whatever I'm, whatever I'm doing, you know, um, I ask people, have you ever seen a Bigfoot or do you know somebody personally who says they have? And I get the answer yes about once every five quest, five times I ask. So 20% of the time, I get yes wow. to that question. 
Um, in some places, like on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington, um, it's, it's close to 100% of the time. In other areas of the country, it goes down. Maybe it's 1 out of 20 or something. But you know what? You ask long enough, you're going to find somebody that you know, that you probably know personally and have maybe even for years sometimes, that has seen one but never really told anybody about it because of fear of ridicule. And actually, that happened to my parents. My parents have always, my, I have the most loving parents I could possibly imagine. They've always supported me in all my endeavors, no matter how weird and quirky. Um, and trust me, there's been some crazy stuff in my life. Um, but and my parents, like <laughs> as far as the Bigfoot thing goes, they, my dad was always cautiously skeptical. You know, he's a police, he was a police officer. You know, he, a sheriff actually, technically retired yeah. now and stuff. So very analytical and very fact oriented and all that stuff. Yeah, but he was always cautiously skeptical about the Bigfoot thing. Those are the words he used. And then one time, you know, a decade ago or so, um, he, my parents are very active in their church and they were at choir practice or something like that, some church function. And they, they were talking about me because they love me. Oh, Cliff's out doing, you know, one of his Bigfoot things. And this woman that they've known for 15 years, um, uh, 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 the wife of a, of a retired admiral in the Navy, said, oh, I saw a Bigfoot one time. And my parents went, what? Said, yeah, my, my son and I were driving by a Trees of Mystery up in Northern California in Klamath. And, yeah, I saw a Bigfoot. It's about 50 yards off the road just walking. And, you know, what? And she said it again, you know. <laughs> and, and it was that moment that the paradigm shifted for my parents. Uh, because, again, they know her. They trust her. So I would encourage anybody listening, start asking. You are, I can almost guarantee that it's not going to take, you know, five years to find somebody. It, you'll be surprised. You might know somebody personally that might even be in your regular everyday life that saw one of these things if you live in that right kind of area. If all your right. friends live in downtown Los Angeles, then you're going to have to ask a long time. But, uh, <laughs> but, but you run an outdoor show. Your uh -huh. listeners probably know at least one person who has had an experience with a Sasquatch at one point. Oh, yeah. I you know when I when I first posted this show up a couple of weeks ago after after we confirmed with your producers and stuff and your your people back in Los Angeles or wherever it is, you know I posted it up and I started getting the usual you know the, the emails. Oh God, what are you going to do now? You know you get you get these good old boys they don't want anything to do with this. And then you get you know the the ones that are kind of interested. And then um, the ones that really surprised me, the ones that I got that didn't really surprise me. They're they're very supportive of the subject matter. They're open minded. They're not you know, knuckle-dragging Neanderthals that, you know, all they know how to do is shoot and kill stuff. I mean, they actually think. Um, no, most of them, like, anyway, yeah. Oh, you know, most of the guys, most of the guys that, uh, that are in this audience, most people, I would say, are very well-educated. Um, most of them are, uh, have an extremely good income stream. Um, and, I mean, they're, they're not, they're not your typical booger-eating morons, okay? They're, mm -hmm. they're good, hard-working, decent people. <laughs> they work hard, you know? Um, what I was really surprised about was the number of emails that I got that were very supportive of the of the subject matter, and even a few of them that were they didn't come right out and say it, but they alluded to the fact that they had more than just a passing curiosity based on an experience, okay, mm -hmm. that they perhaps couldn't explain. And you know, I think I shared with you one of my uh, one of my close friends. He lives up in Ohio, and he and I were having a conversation. This is two and a half, three years ago. And I I had just seen something about the Ohio grass man. He goes, Oh, that's not a joke. Those are real. I said, How do you know? He goes, I saw one. I said, Excuse right. me? You know, yeah, did I did we have this conversation? Yeah, and did how long had you known that guy before he shared that with you? Eight years. Yeah, exactly. The guy is a yeah, the guy is a deacon in the church up there. 
All right, he owns a, a company that is known worldwide uh, for making for manufacturing uh, wild uh, game calls. Okay, mm-hmm. and he is one of the most well-respected people in the industry. And we were just having a phone conversation, and I said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, I heard all about you guys up there. We were talking about football and this and that." And I said, "Yeah, well, yeah, I just saw something on on the internet about this alleged Bigfoot thing you guys call it. You got you guys call it the Grassman." He goes, "There's nothing alleged about it. They're real." I said, mm-hmm. "Seriously, how do you know that?" He goes, "I saw one. My brother and I saw one." Right, right. And it was it was in the afternoon. It wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't the night. Oh yeah. So many times, I, I, I people come to me. Or, I mean, obviously, I get a lot of stories because, like, obviously, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a believer, if you want to call that. I didn't say yeah. no or point. Um, but a lot of people are shocked because, like, I knew this guy for 15 years, Cliff, and then I find out he saw a Bigfoot when he was eight years old. Why didn't he tell me? So, well, why would he tell you? You know, he's gonna. You might laugh at him. People are uh, embarrassed to see these things. People don't want other people to know that they've seen them because of fear of ridicule. And especially in, like, these small little towns that, you know, Finding Bigfoot pops around and goes visits. Um, because some of these people have nothing but their reputation. You know, right. some some of these people in these really small towns are very, very poor but well-respected nonetheless. And if they say right. they saw a Bigfoot, then they just lost the only thing that they had of value, which was their reputation. And even if they have, even if they're like you know, um, you know, middle class folks or whatever living in these rural areas, in these small small towns, you don't want to be thought of as crazy or on drugs or hallucinating or whatever, you know, or lying, you know. Right. People don't want to share their encounters out of fear, and it, hopefully, the Finding Bigfoot show at least will. will convince enough people like, well, these things are real. You have nothing to be afraid of. Seeing one right. of these things is just like seeing a bear, but even cooler because they're even more rare. Well, I think that one of the coolest things about it is where you guys had the town hall meetings. I know that wasn't part of the first season's deal, right? It was kind of a second season thing. You guys no, 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 we did, we did town halls first, first Did season. you in the first one? Yeah. Oh, that, okay, it was the spending the night, spending two or three yeah, nights out there yeah, alone. That's, that was, that's new for this season. But what I thought was really cool about that is that you had a lot of people show up these things, and there's going to be, you know, the skeptics. You always got somebody who's going to show up that's going to go, ah, if you're if they're real, how come you don't have any bones? How was the body? And blah, blah, blah. But you're going to have all these other people, and you get a lot of those nervous looks from their from their neighbors and relatives or neighbors, whatever. When they stick their arm up in the air, they're looking around like, oh, my God, really? Uh-huh. You know, oh, yeah. Those aren't the nervous, I'm embarrassed for you looks. Those are the nervous, oh, crap, I never knew looks, you know. And uh-huh. when they're doing that in front of a bunch of people, maybe maybe it will encourage more people to be more forthcoming, you know, with, with some of their stuff. You know, you just – Yeah, you know, know, one, know of the, one, of the, one of the jokes that we often tell at the, um, at the town hall meetings is like it's almost like an AA meeting. You know, and people put their hands in the air and says, uh, my name's Cliff and I'm a Bigfoot witness. You know, it's, it's <laughs> like they're admitting something, you know. It's like an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting a lot of times, but it's a safe environment, and that's the cool thing about those town hall meetings is that, yeah, we know that some of the witnesses that we are personally in contact with are going to show up. But at the same time, like I said earlier in this program, a lot of the stories we hear no one's ever heard before because this is like the first environment that these people have ever been in where they feel safe enough to share with somebody, with us luckily, with our team, uh, what what happened to them? And uh, like right. we've had people cry at these meetings. 
Um, we've had, you know, even at these meetings, I have people almost every single meeting coming up to me afterwards saying, I didn't feel comfortable raising my hand, Cliff, but I'd like to tell you my story. And they tell uh-huh. me about a sighting they had. Like literally, like seriously, like 80% of the meetings that happens to me, and I'm assuming it happens to every other cast member as well. Well, it's kind of like the old the old adage, you know, for everyone that you see, um, there's 10 that you didn't see. Okay? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, like, you know, deer hunting, for example. You know, for every for every decent-sized buck you see over there, you know, there can be 10 that you didn't see because they saw you, okay? Mm-hmm. Same right. thing probably applies to your to your witnesses. For everyone that comes forward, there's probably going to be, you know, 5 to 10 that don't want to come forward because, you know, they, they don't feel compelled to have to relive that whole episode or whatever. Um, oh, you know what? I'll, I'll, I'm going to jump in here and say that in my opinion – I think that, uh, like, Matt's database, which I said is the biggest one currently out there, um, Matt has something like 33,000 raw reports submitted. And, of course, some of them are hoaxes, some of them are lies, some of them are misidentifications, but a lot of them are probably legit. You know, I know some of them are, for sure. Right. Um, but I think even at that staggering number, that um, Matt's database combined with mine and all the other databases that are out there online and in books, including John Green's, I think that we'd be lucky to have 1% of the sightings that actually happened reported to anybody. For every one, I think that there's at least 100 out there that has never been shared because people don't care about sharing it or don't think it's important enough to share or embarrassed or whatever reason they have. Um, I think most, the vast majority, and again, the vast majority of sightings and encounters never get reported to anybody. You know, I, I, I bet you're probably closer to right than you think i you know i know that uh, i've read stories where people spent a lot of years trying to assimilate what it was they saw and disseminate what they saw and they just could not come to what what fit into the standard box that we know in society and they they spent a lot of years just you know pushing those memories down and, and keeping them back um, yeah you know, and convincing themselves they saw something. Here's a good story for you. I was given, I was out at this this location on the other side of the Sandy River at my friend's house, and he, this this guy had Bigfoots on his property occasionally, and he had he thought he had one the previous night. So I came out to look around for prints and stuff. I didn't find any, but the guy who was working on his house um, was one of his one of his friends. I had never met the man before. Um, I offered to give him a ride back to the train station in town because this is a rural property, so it would have it, been you know about twenty thirty minute drive. So I, I offered to take the guy to the train station so he could hop on the train and get back home. Um, you know, like a you know like a, a commuter train, not like a train to you know San Francisco, but a commuter train right. around around Portland. And on the way out, he's saying, "Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't, I know you're a big. I don't really believe in the Bigfoot thing. It just doesn't make any sense to me and stuff." And they go, "Oh yeah, well, you know, that's cool. I understand that." So, well, you know, what about the bones? And I'd tell them about the bones. Well, why don't people see them more? Well, people see them kind of all the time, and I'd tell them about that. And I said, dude, so you're telling – then I talked to him. I said, you're a hunter. You've been out there all your life, like since you were four years old hunting. You've never seen anything weird out in the woods, huh, uh, that you couldn't explain? He says, well, yeah, that one, one time, yeah, over by Saddle Mountain or whatever. Well, what happened? Well, it was a bear. It was a, and so we have a well, – what happened? Yeah, I just saw this bear walking away from me, you know, like walking down the hill, um, swinging his arms when it walked. I said, a bear. So wait, wait, wait! Swinging its arms like it wasn't on all fours. No, no, it was on his hind feet. Uh, so wait, it was swinging its arms. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was walking downhill away from us. I saw it like wide shoulders and it was swinging its arms and it was going away from me. 
Dude, bears don't have wide shoulders, and they don't swing their arms. They don't really walk down thick, brushy paths on two legs. That's not really what they do. He says, yeah, but he like, looks at me, and I said, dude, that wasn't a bear that you saw. It couldn't have been. And then I started explaining anatomy to him and how bears, like their shoulder blades are like underneath them because they're heavy animals and like the, the compression of the, the, the shoulder blades um, and the, the changes the position and they, they aren't even able to swing their arms, you know. And I started explaining right. some anatomical features. And I spun that guy's world, man. Like when he left my car, he was just like staring, like like kind of off. He was, you, you think that was a Bigfoot? I said, dude, if you're if you're telling me the truth, you saw a Bigfoot. You did not see a bear. But we started that conversation by him saying, yeah, Bigfoots aren't real, man. I just can't see it. But right. Dude, you saw one. He put it into that category. In, in, yeah, he was compartmentalizing it into something that he could accept, okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because you know while he was saying that's a bear, there was a whole bunch of him going, bull crap. You know, he, he knew, but he... He had to compartmentalize it into something that he could accept what it was. I mean, right? Um, you see that in a lot of different things in in human nature. Uh, oh yeah, you know, yeah. People, especially when they've lost a loved one or something, they they tend to compartmentalize it into into things that they can deal with the reality of it a lot better. Um, well, yeah, and you know, actually, you see a real strong vein of, frankly, um, post traumatic stress disorder in people who cannot come to grips with what happened to them. They lose Absolutely. sleep. They cry inexplicably. But like, they, it is um, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and Bigfoot, like seeing a Bigfoot, can do that to somebody if they can't find the right filing cabinet in their brain to put that thing in. You know? Right. Oh, I, 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 there's no doubt in my mind. Absolutely no doubt in my mind. It's like I cannot, I cannot have seen what I see. And then they start doubting their own sanity. And the whole time, mm-hmm. I know what I saw, but I can't. They don't exist. So therefore, I, you know. I'm losing my mind, and then yeah. then that opens up a whole other box of issues. But um, you know, I I just oh, it's it's kind of fr- it's kind of crazy. I'm going to tell you, there was a guy on here tonight. He goes by the the screen name Meats. All right, um, he's a great guy. He's from up in Washington. Okay, um, he is a contest caller. I mean, he's a professional uh, contest caller. He's a competitive caller. Um, super nice guy. And he's one of the biggest skeptics on the planet. And one of these bright days, he and I are going to have to have a heart-to-heart conversation because one of the guys that is one of the people that he puts up on a pedestal and, and is just thinks the world of, that is one of the greatest guys on the planet, talks about him all the time, is the guy who had the experience on the bar up there in the river mm. 20 years ago. Nice. And it, it'll be interesting to have him. Here, here's a guy who's one of your heroes. Go ahead. Tell him he's full of crap. Tell him he's a liar. Right. <laughs> exactly. It's like, you know, the the snowshoes on the other foot, dude. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Exactly. On the other big foot. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> well, hey, man, I I kept you way later than I wanted to. And actually, I I could keep talking to you about this stuff for hours, but I know you yeah, got Yeah, that's my bed. problem, too. Like, you know, I mean, I'm on an hour and a half sleep last night. I traveled all day to Florida from Oregon. And here I am. I'm looking at the clock. It's 11:34 according to my hotel room clock, and it, it, it feels like the last couple hours. I think I called in at eight o'clock my time, or nine o'clock. I don't know, nine o'clock my time. Right. So it's like two hours, two and a half hours, and it feels like it was about 35 minutes um, because yeah. I'm talking Bigfoot, and that's what I love to do. So uh, I appreciate you having me on. No, hey, I appreciate you coming on. I really do. Um, I do have a question for you. You you said something about Kansas, 
Okay, we're not exactly a hotbed of, of Bigfoot stuff here. But where in Kansas was this person talking to you about? I mean, just general location, southeast Kansas? Yes, southeast Kansas, up against Oklahoma. Yeah, because every single state at one point or another, except for Hawaii, has had reported Bigfoot sightings. Um, But what's interesting about those sightings is it's not a demographic nature. In other words, like, you know, uh, people of this particular economic bracket don't see them, or this particular race or creed or religion. It's it's not limited to a certain kind of person. It's always limited to a geographic thing. In other words, the animal inhabits a certain habitat, and it's in that habitat that they're seen. So in Nebraska, for example, where you wouldn't expect a Bigfoot to be, where are they seen very, very rarely? Well, the river bottoms, the thickly wooded river bottoms that kind of permeate the plains. In Kansas, where's the most likely habitat? Well, it turns out it's in southeast Kansas, and that's where the the very, very few sightings that are in Kansas come from. Mm -hmm. It's a geographical phenomenon, not a demographic. I was actually kind of stunned um, to read about how much activity there is in the state of Oklahoma. Oh, yeah, Oklahoma's really good. It's like, seriously? There's at least, actually, there's at least two, there's at least three photographs and a film um, out of Oklahoma, and I, I, there's rumors of a couple more, but I know these other ones exist. Oklahoma is very, very good Bigfoot habitat, and a lot of stuff happens there. Huh. Who'd have thunk it? Who would have thunk it? All right. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. Well, Dude, I wish you the very best with your with your endeavor. Uh, I I really 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 hope that uh, you finally get to see one of these guys soon. I know your face oh, is not is not shaken, but uh, <laughs> you, know, you got a fire in your belly now just after seeing footprints and hearing stuff and watching Bobo's eyeballs get all big and you know following the story. So I I just I can't imagine how crazy and wild you're going to be about this once you have your first hands-on experience well not really hands-on i don't want that on anybody but <laughs> oh i'd go for it for sure i don't absolutely i'd get as close as i possibly can i'd take one for the team if you know absolutely no no i'm not the smartest guy in the world but i think i probably draw the line in the sand with arm wrestling with bigfoot that's not going to happen you know oh i'd go for it you know what i mean if you ever find my corpse in the woods somewhere uncurl my hand and check for hairs um, that's all They're I got both pulled off at the shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know well, what? I'm going to ask you a real quick question. Um, wolves interacting with with these things. Um, there was a guy in Wyoming not too long ago that told me. How did he put that? He he was out there trying to get film evidence of these wolf packs because they're they're decimating the elk herds and the deer herds. Okay, and he had seen something that at first he thought was a bear. These wolves were harassing what he thought was a bear, and the bear stood up and walked away from the wolves and turned towards them menacingly, those are his words, and the wolves hauled ass. Okay, uh-huh. I've never heard of anything like this before. Now, if if somebody wants to know what happens to a carcass, if you have wolves in that area, they strip it clean, they crush the bones, they get the marrow out of the bones, then the porcupines, the squirrels, the skunks, and everything else that eats calcium will show up and get rid of the rest of it. Right. But exactly. I right. wouldn't. I wouldn't think that those things would be, want to be around wolves. I mean. Uh, well, well, you know what? I think it might be the opposite, and uh, I don't have a lot of experience in wolves because there are very, very few wolves out where I live. 
Um, however, I have a tremendous amount of experience with coyotes, and it's it's very often true that we find Sasquatches and coyotes either like in the same areas or even traveling together, it seems. And I, I have an idea why, maybe why this is happening. Um, I, I really don't know why it's happening, but my hypothesis is that the coyotes are looking for an easy meal. The coyotes are going to scavenge off of a, of a Bigfoot kill, um, which to me makes a lot of sense because there's been five or six times that I've done vocalizations, like I've yelled, and I heard a Bigfoot call back, and then the coyotes jump on top of it. You know, and skeptics say, well, that was just a coyote too, but like in, in my opinion, that wasn't the, the, what would actually happen. So imagine now if you're a Bigfoot and you're out foraging and you're killing, you know, deer or, you know, raccoons or whatever and eating these things, and uh, then you have this pesky pack of coyotes following you around all the time looking for an easy meal and stealing stuff from you. It would probably tick you off pretty bad. And I and that kind of goes back to something that we were talking about earlier, like the whole dog-Bigfoot interaction thing. I don't right. think Bigfoots like dogs because Bigfoots probably don't like coyotes for that reason. Imagine sitting at your dinner table every night and having to like like make sure coyotes didn't take your scraps. Well, well yeah, but look- coyotes, coyotes are a nuisance, okay? I Absolutely. Mean, or something like that, they're a nuisance. But where you've got 14 or 15 wolves that weigh, you know, anywhere from 110 to 160 pounds, yeah. that that kind of goes beyond the boundaries of a nuisance. This same videographer that I'm talking about, um, he himself was attacked by a pack of wolves last year. Oh, and, bummer. And it was, no, yeah, that's not what he said. He was coming out of Idaho, and uh, he literally, um, he took his 45 off. He killed eight of them. And he goes, he was. It was the most scared he'd ever been in his life. And, oh yeah, because uh, they he, they would one would charge him. He would he would address that one and get him to back up, and, and he would notice movement, and one was coming up behind him. It was like he said they were they were treating me like I was an elk or another form of prey. And he goes, the way they were going about it methodically, he goes, I swear to God, he goes, this wasn't their first time to do this to a human or something human, two footed, because mm-hmm. he said they approached it much differently than they do with an elk. An elk, they try to run down, you know, and, and hamstring it. He goes, you know, with with me, he says, there was no running down. They just circled me. And he goes, whenever I turned to shoot at one that was being aggressive, one directly behind me would try to move in on me. And it just, yeah. it completely freaked him out, you know. Yeah, yeah, that would be a terrifying situation, certainly. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, and you know, and for a Bigfoot, I think it would be a very problematic. But a, you know, a twelve hundred pound Bigfoot would probably take care of the wolves in pretty short order. But it's yeah. still, even then, it wouldn't be a pleasant encounter by any means. No, but it could be something that you know I, later on, because the wolves are expanding. I mean, they're in Colorado; they're all over up in your part of the world, and they'll be coming to a, a heavily treed area near you soon, as long as there's deer there for them to eat. And that's what's going to put them in direct competition with the Bigfoot. Okay. Well, yeah, but remember, back in the day, there were already wolves there, and it's just kind of rebalancing itself in some way. So the Bigfoots, genetically speaking, have already dealt with that threat. And, you know, some Bigfoots will probably be, 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 uh, be you know, taken down by wolves, and, but that's part of the natural process. Right. And if the wolves are going to reintroduce themselves in the areas, then the Bigfoots will just have to uh, manage, basically. They're going to have to adapt in their own ways. Now, um, I, I kind of view it like uh, mountain lions. Mountain lions, you know, could probably take down most most people, but they choose not to because there's easier things around to get. And Bigfoots have to be one of the hardest things to bring down because they're so smart, so fast, and so strong. 
Well, the only places where, where mountain lions choose not to attack people are areas where they are still hunted, okay? Look at what mm-hmm. California did a few years ago by outlawing hunting for mountain lions. Yeah. Mountain lion attacks are very common out there because they've lost their fear of man. Um, and, you know, with, with wolves in, in, the, in the wilderness and stuff, before the white man showed up, the, the Native Americans were here. And they hunted wolves, too, because they would, you know, the wolves would be, pestering them they'd be you know chasing game down they the american indians hunted wolves i mean they held them in high regard um not as high regard as they did the coyote because the coyote was one of those things that they thought was the most brilliant animal on the planet um mm-hmm. but you know that was part of the natural process of of keeping the the numbers down um the american indians hunted them for for their fur and also for food i mean um to them you know wolf was a very big dog and the indians used dogs for Trail help with transportation. They also used them for a food source. Mm-hmm. Um, but once the uh, once the Indians got screwed over by us and decimated by disease and alcohol and fast women and slow horses and <laughs> yeah. yeah, they were done. You know who wants to go shoot a wolf? Not me. You know so they were yeah, right. They were right. Anyway, well, hey, this looks like a good place to end this. I just want to tell you thanks again for coming on. Um, I want to wish you the very best for this next season. Um, I think it's going to be well, if it's anything like the last two, it can't do anything but get better. You know, it's going to get better because you know the first season was was pretty decent. Second season, we looked at the flaws and tried to improve them. We're doing the same thing for third season. We're going to new locations. We're going to places no one's ever done our tricks. Um, and you know, we're going to see what happens. And I think uh, it's going to be a fantastic third season. And I'm looking forward to filming it starting next week. Um, and I'm certainly looking forward to seeing the final product. I think it's going to be spectacular. Oh, good. Thanks again, Cliff. I appreciate it, man. Uh, my pleasure, Kelly. Let, right. Give me a call after uh, sometime this summer. Maybe we'll do this again after Season 3 starts, Aaron. Excellent. Sounds like a plan, Stan. All right? All right. Very good, man. All right. You have a good evening. Thank you, buddy. And uh, hey, you say hello to Hunter for me. I'll do it, man. Thank you very much. You made that kid's day. I promise cool. you. All right. Very have good, a good evening. Bye-bye. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that uh, is going to conclude another episode of Kelly Outdoors. Um, I told you it was going to be a little bit of departure from the norm, and uh, it was, truly was. Um, good Lord, two hours and 44 minutes. Um, Cliff was dragging, but he got we got talking about this stuff, and he's truly passionate about this. Um, Cliff has never had his own personal sighting, um, but he has had enough experiences and been around enough people that you know he's he's a believer. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. And you know when I talk to somebody like Cliff that's that's as passionate about this as he is, it's hard not to you know move closer to that to that edge of the fence. Um, I've always believed that there was something out there that you know we couldn't compartmentalize, define, put into a neat little box or an envelope, if you will. Um, that it was something beyond uh, well the given boundaries of what we understand today in science. Uh, and I think it's just a question of time before we have definitive answers uh, because of guys like Cliff and others out there that are that are hardworking and dedicated to trying to, trying to move this forward. So anyway, um, I'm going to have to tell you on my posts on Facebook and stuff who my guest is next week because I couldn't tell you right off the top of my head. Um, or maybe I can. Hold on. The miracles of what I am doing are going to become apparent. Um, I'm going to switch over here. Just take me a second. Uh, Long second. (laughs) I'm sorry. Um, 
upcoming episode for next week is drumroll. Okay, it's pretty crappy drumroll, i got to be honest. Um, oh, yeah, crap. Good people. Um, Ryan and Sarah Mirnan, they are the guy, the guys and the gals, the, the dudes and the babes, um, with uh, Duck Junkies. Okay, Two super great people in the industry. Really, 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 really are. Um, they're going to be back with us, and we're going to talk about uh, stuff, and that'll be next week. And in the following week, I'm going to have uh, Bob Fulcher. He's a custom talk call maker, uh, Turkey Calls. Um, the week after that, oh, my God, the 14th of March, Antonio Jones, World Championship Duck Caller, is going to be joining us. Um, and then the week after that, I couldn't tell you because it's not on my schedule, but it's there. I know we're booked all the way through the end of March and into April, so... Anyway, guys, I just want to tell you thank you very much for joining us tonight. Um, it was a great show. If you have any questions or concerns or thoughts, you can send me an email at kellyoutdoors at sbcglobal.net. I answer all my emails. Sometimes I actually learn how to spell the words correctly, but uh, <laughs> that's what it's about, man. So anyhow, thanks a lot for joining us tonight. God bless and take care. Have a good evening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.